Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Abby Phillip is here, and we have significant news. More criminal charges against former President Donald Trump appear to be imminent. It's been a dramatic and consequential 24 hours since we last saw you. And we're going to have team coverage with the latest breaking details all morning. But first, here's what we know right now. The former president says he expects to be indicted and arrested for the third time. Announcing himself, the special counsel notified him he's a target of the investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And new developments in the classified documents case against former President Trump. A Florida judge says she will decide on a trial date soon. She did signal, though, that mid-December, the timeline the prosecutors requested, is too soon. Plus, the first criminal charges in the 2020 fake elector scheme, the Michigan Attorney General is charging 16 people with felonies, accusing them of signing certificates that falsely claimed Trump won the 2020 election there. Trump's response to his mounting legal trouble? Defiance. He attacked the Justice Department by calling the investigations themselves, quote, election interference. And as for Trump's main GOP rival in the race for the White House, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he hopes that the former president does not face charges, telling CNN exclusively it would be bad for the country. A lot to talk about this hour. CNN This Morning starts right now. And we, we are getting started with full team coverage from Washington to Florida to Michigan here in New York. We're covering all the angles, all the big developments as the former president faces a potential third criminal indictment. Senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance is in Washington, D.C. Jessica Schneider is in Michigan, where the so-called fake electors are now facing charges. Maggie Haberman, former lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan and former federal prosecutor J.D. Katie Tchaikovsky are standing by for expert analysis. We want to start with Paula Reed. Live outside the federal courthouse in Fort Pierce, Florida. Paula, huge, kind of almost head spinning developments yesterday, given the scale of them in both areas of Jack Smith's investigation. That's exactly right, Phil. Just hours before Trump's lawyers were expected to appear for the first time before the federal judge who will oversee the Mar a Lago documents case. The pres former president announced that he has also received a target letter in the special counsel's January 6th investigation. Now, look, there are two different investigations, but it's likely that the defense strategy will be the same as it has been for decades when it comes to Trump, and that is to delay, delay, delay. And yesterday in court, it was clear that the judge overseeing the Mar-a-Lago documents case is open to likely delaying this case until next year and possibly even until after the election. Former President Trump defiant and railing against special counsel Jack Smith during a Fox News town hall in Iowa Tuesday. I got the letter on Sunday night. Think of it. I don't think they've ever sent a letter on Sunday night. And they're in a rush because they want to interfere. It's interference with the election. It's election interference. Never been done like this in the history of our country. And it's a disgrace. Trump fuming after announcing he had received a letter from the special counsel informing him that he is a target in the criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump says he was given four days to report to the grand jury and indicated that he believes that means an arrest and indictment is imminent. His legal team has not formally responded, and sources tell CNN that they were caught off guard because they were not anticipating charges against the former president. These are evil people, deranged. I call them deranged. 
CNN has learned in recent months, prosecutors have interviewed officials from all seven 2020 battleground states targeted by the former president and his allies in their efforts to overturn the election. Trump's allies on Capitol Hill rushing to his defense. President Trump went up in the polls and was uh, actually surpassing President Biden for re-election. So what do they do now? Weaponize government. With the threat of yet another indictment looming, Trump's lawyers appeared in a South Florida courtroom Tuesday to discuss his indictment in the classified documents case where he is facing 37 felony counts. Trump appointed Judge Eileen Cannon, signaling the Justice Department's desire to hold a trial in mid-December of this year may be too soon, given the highly sensitive nature of the case and the evidence that it's based on. She did not appear, though, willing to delay the trial indefinitely, saying she plans to rule, quote, promptly. A trial starting in 2024 could collide with the Republican presidential primary, where Trump is the current frontrunner. His rivals in the race now facing yet another round of questions in what could be yet another indictment. I think the DOJ continues to try to find a way to weaponize its powers against the former president. Yesterday in court, lawyers on both sides were really focused on Trump's status as a candidate. Now, prosecutors insist that it doesn't matter if he's running for president again. He should be treated like, quote, any other important, busy American facing criminal charges. But his lawyers argue that it would be unfair to hold a trial before the election. Interestingly, the judge wasn't interested in this at all. Instead, she wanted to focus on how long it was going to take the lawyers to do the work to get ready for trial. And she insinuated that if once she gets that information, then she can put a date on the calendar. All right, Paula, um, stay with us. Let's bring in now senior CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Poland, CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman and former federal prosecutor Katie Cherasky. Uh, Kate, Caitlin, I want to go to you here on th this uh, information that we are now getting about what was contained inside of this target letter. There are three potential statutes, it looks like, that may be used against Trump in this election interference case. Can you tell us about what we know now? Yeah. So, Abby, whenever a subject gets a target letter, so the Justice Department basically is telling them you might be indicted, Typically, in the sample version of this letter, and we haven't seen it yet, but there have been some reports in some other media outlets who have said uh, this letter does identify some of the crimes that Donald Trump is very likely to be charged with, that the prosecutors are clearly looking at. One of them, conspiracy to defraud the United States. That is a general conspiracy charge, but it's a pretty significant charge. It's used quite often. It essentially means that Donald Trump was making an agreement with other people uh, to carry forward the acts that the Justice Department believes are illegal. It is a pretty significant thing uh, to be charged with that. On top of that, the tampering with a witness charge, that's something that we don't have a lot of more detail of exactly what crime that could be. There's a couple different ones, uh, but it might not actually be tampering with a witness in the classic sense. It might be the way that the Justice Department has known to be investigating here and has been using in these January 6th cases where they're saying they're accusing people of absurdity 
obstructing the congressional proceeding. And so that is something that we knew that they were looking at, at least related to some others. And then this third potential charge that's listed here, uh, according to multiple news outlets, is that there is a deprivation of rights uh, possibility of a charge. That's a civil rights charge. And I've talked to some defense lawyers, some former prosecutors about it. It's actually not charged that often, but it is a charge used where someone who's in a public position uh, uses their ability uh, in some way that is wrong. Either it's outside of the bounds of what their role is, or they use their role in a way to deprive someone else of some sort of right. It doesn't have to be uh, civil rights that are classically protected, but it is a deprivation of rights charge that could potentially carry some pretty serious penalties if it does have to do with violence. But, you know, we don't know exactly what this case is going to be, how it's going to be laid out um, in the Justice Department's own words whenever they bring this indictment. There always could be other things that we see whenever the indictment is filed, uh, if it is approved by the grand jury. But those three things, that is a, a pretty significant case that does track with what we believe the Justice Department has been investigating here for some time. All right, Caitlin, stay with us. We, again, we have team coverage. We're going to keep following this as it moves along throughout the morning. But, uh, Katie, I, I want to follow up with what Caitlin was describing there. From a lawyer perspective, from a legal perspective, as you look at these three potential charges, as have been reported by other news outlets, what stands out to you? Well, I think that we, we obviously don't know what charges are going to be laid out. And the other thing we don't know is whether Jack Smith has evidence that has not been disclosed to the public at this point. There's been ongoing interviews. And so there may be other charges that are outside of what is actually known to the public at this point. But certainly, I think on the facts, those are very obvious charges in terms of uh, defrauding the government, conspiracies. There's a lot of interviews with other folks about conversations that Trump had with them. So that, that seems clear. I think the bigger question is really on kind of the jurisdictional side of things in terms of his status as the president at the time. And that's something that will also have to be litigated if there is an indictment in this case. But again, these are all speculation because we don't have the indictment that's, that's been filed at this do point. You, do you point. think that the target letter that, uh, will be the scope of it? What is contained in that letter in terms of what charges he could possibly face? It's possible. I mean, generally speaking, in a target letter, the um, the prosecutors are going to lay out what the, the allegations are, but there's no final charging decision that's made at that point, and they're certainly not bound by that. Yeah. So, Paula, uh, let's go to you. I mean, this is in the context here of an incredible amount of legal issues that Trump himself is facing. It's not just this. You're in Florida because of that other case, the classified documents case. How is Trump's legal orbit uh, handling all of this? And are you getting any indications that he's going to need more legal firepower to go into this next phase of things? Oh, yeah, Abby, he is absolutely going to need additional lawyers, especially if he is charged uh, in Washington, D.C. as well. This actually came up yesterday in court. His lawyers talked about the burden that they're currently bearing, both in New York, where the former president faces criminal and civil cases. Of course, they have one special counsel, criminal prosecution, and they made a nod to the target letter saying, look, another one's likely coming. And they talked to the judge about how this was so, a lot of work, not just for them, but also for their client and preparing their client for each of these cases. Now, they were using this in court to try to delay this trial until at least next year, likely after the election. But it also just it makes it crystal clear uh, that he absolutely needs additional lawyers. His two lawyers, Todd Blanche, 
Chris Kyes, they're working with some other lawyers who are in his orbit. But after the recent departures of at least three of his key attorneys, he's going to have to look for more lawyers. And Abby, as we know, that's been difficult for him over the past few years. Uh, prospective lawyers have told us they're worried about getting paid. And they're also worried about the potential political blowback or alienating their current clients. So it is likely he'll find additional lawyers, but it's taken a while here in Florida and it could take a while in D.C. as well. Yeah. Maggie, I was struck yesterday in calls and text messages with Republicans outside the Trump orbit. I think the frustration and concern related to a major January 6th case or a major uh, election interference case just because that issue, in their view, resonates uh, with the American public politically. Maybe not uh, dramatically across the Republican electorate or in the primary, but certainly more broadly in the country. My question is, does Trump view these things differently, view these cases differently, view as one is more of a threat than another? So Trump views broadly all of these cases as a threat to him. You put them collectively together, Phil, and he is facing significant jail time if convicted, uh, in, particularly in the federal cases, assuming, again, he has not been charged here yet. I think it's important to note a target letter does usually lead to charges. It doesn't always. But yes, he is looking at this broadly as a political threat. The documents case in particular had very much upset them for a variety of reasons because it was an FBI search on his home. It was a different type of thing. In this case, he is a upset about it. I heard yesterday it was basically a typical plane ride to Iowa, but he was not in a great mood in, in portions of it. Uh, I think you're going to hear that going forward. He is going to be upset because this is, as you say, a dominant issue in the country, even if it's not the thing that voters say that they are voting on. You are correct that Republicans are aware that in 2022, candidates who espoused Trump's election lies uh, ended up basically paying the price uh, at the ballot box in November, even if, as you know, this played well in Republican primaries where Trump's voice and vote really do matter. But at the moment, he is seeing this broadly as a, as a threat to his freedom. And his advisors have been in private conversations pretty blunt that they see it as he has to win the election. And that is how he guarantees that he does not face jail time. Now, again, it only takes one juror in any of these cases. He has not been convicted of anything. But the fact that they are looking at an election to the highest office in the land as some kind of a, a, an insurance policy or an out for him really affects and, and I think colors the entire presidential race. Yeah. Katie, uh, as we go into this phase where we are, as you say, needing to look at the documents, the actual indictment when it comes out. A lot of this case has been tried publicly through an impeachment proceeding. Th those, that testimony has been made public. A lot of it is out there. From what you know, how much more does Jack Smith need to have in order to substantiate a criminal charge or criminal charges against a former president? Well, it depends really what kind of charges you're talking about. So when we're talking about, let's say, like inciting a, a riot or an insurrection type charge, I think you're going to need a lot more than what was in the speeches preceding that event. Um, for the, the defrauding and conspiracy type charges, they may have enough with what they have. But again, we're talking about the facts of the case and not necessarily about the jurisdiction and the unprecedented nature of indicting a former president for acts that occurred solely while he was in office. And I think, you know, I'm a criminal defense attorney um, on the federal side. And so we always want to look at just jurisdictionally, is this case going to survive appellate scrutiny? And so certainly if an indictment is issued, then the case will proceed unless and until the charges are withdrawn or dismissed 
or a court says that they cannot proceed. But I think that these are really bigger constitutional questions that do have to be analyzed by the prosecutors and, of course, by the defense team. That's going to be a big push from the very beginning, probably, for Trump's side. Yeah. It's a good reminder that there's no precedent here. We're in a very different world. And can Caitlin Polance, to that point, since you're my ass Jeeves on everything technical <laughs> with all of these cases to some degree, what's next? And I, Maggie makes a great point that we should reiterate all morning. No charges have been brought. This is a target letter generally or often ends up in charges. We obviously saw that in the documents case as well, but no charges have been brought yet. But what should we be watching for in this specific case going forward? Yeah, well, Phil, we're going to be watching the federal court. That's where the grand jury has been sitting. That's where they've been hearing this evidence. Uh, we don't know exactly what stage the Justice Department is in. Clearly, they're in an end stage, and Donald Trump may very well be right that he may be arrested and indicted uh, in very, very short order. Uh, but we know that the grand jury, they will have to meet. So it's a secret panel of people who have been listening to this evidence, and they will have to sign off on the indictment. They will do that in secret. Um, all of their proceedings will remain secret. Uh, their names will remain secret. But once that indictment is signed off, the judge also will approve it. And then it will be released, hopefully, to the public, uh, hopefully not under seal. Uh, I, we would imagine it to be made public, just like the indictment in Florida was. And then we get to see what the Justice Department has in their case. And we move forward uh, with having an arraignment, just like what happened in Miami in the in the coming days after an indictment, a defendant comes in, enters their initial plea of not guilty, very likely that Trump would do that as well. And so we're just going to have to keep watching the grand jury in Washington. But we already know that there is a witness, at least one witness scheduled for tomorrow to come in there. So unclear exactly when or how this will play out in the oh, coming days. Quite a lot ahead there, as you just laid out, uh, Caitlin, and we'll be covering all of it. Paula Reed, Caitlin Polance. Thank you as well, Katie and Maggie. Both of you stay with us. We have so much more to discuss in the coming hour. Yeah, including this, Michigan's attorney general bringing felony charges against 16 fake electors who signed certificates falsely claiming Trump won the election. We're going to break down the alleged scheme and who these electors are coming up next. And we're now learning that the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea was facing disciplinary action, and he was set to leave the military. What his mother is saying now. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This plan to reject the will of the voters and undermine democracy was fraudulent and legally baseless. And for the very first time, suspects have now been charged in a 2020 fake elector scheme. Here's a look at some of the 16 people now facing multiple felonies accused of acting as fake electors and signing certificates falsely claiming that then-President Trump won Michigan in 2020. The group includes current and former Republican officials. And joining us now is CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. She's live in Lansing, Michigan this morning. Jessica, this is really an extraordinary development. What are the charges that these individuals are facing. Yeah, Abby, they are facing multiple felonies, eight counts for each of these 16 defendants. And this is all stemming from when these 16 Republicans allegedly tried to storm the Capitol just behind me here in Lansing 
on December 14th, 2020. They were armed with these fake certificates, falsely proclaiming that Donald Trump had won the state of Michigan here in 2020, despite the fact that Joe Biden actually won this state by 154,000 votes. Now, back in 2020, they were actually thwarted at the Capitol doors by police. But now, of course, they are being charged by the attorney general in this state, Dana Nessel. They're facing these multiple felony counts, including election law forgery. And these just weren't any people. These were prominent Republicans in this state. They included current and former GOP officials, also a member of the Republican National Committee, even a sitting mayor, uh, also a, a member of a, the, a school board here in Michigan. So many prominent Republicans, all of them Trump supporters, all of them trying to argue that Trump had won the election. They were trying to storm in to replace the Democratic electors that were inside. You heard there from the Attorney General Dana Nessel just saying that this plan to undermine democracy was fraudulent and legally baseless. And Abby, she notably is the first state prosecutor to actually bring criminal charges on the state level. And we've been told that these 16 alleged fake electors, they do just have a number of days to turn themselves in on these uh, multiple felony counts. Abby? And and this is obviously not the only place where we've seen these fake electors popping up. Uh, What are some of the other potential investigations at the state level that could involve these kinds of schemes? Yeah, these fake elector plots unfolded in seven different states. So we've seen the action, the first criminal action here in Michigan. But we know there are also investigations unfolding in Fulton County, Georgia. The DA there is looking into it, as well as uh, authorities in Arizona. And notably, Abby, the special counsel, Jack Smith, he's also been probing these fake elector plots as part of his probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So there could be a lot more to come here, more charges against these alleged fake electors in other states. Abby. Jessica Schneider in Lansing, Michigan. Thank you very much. We're going to bring back our panel now. Political analyst Maggie, Maggie Haberman still with us. Federal prosecutor Katie Tchaikovsky. And joining us is former lieutenant governor of Georgia and CNN political contributor Jeff Duncan. Jeff, I want to start with you because one of the seven states is Georgia, where you were lieutenant governor when, when this was all happening right now. Um, what do you think, extrapolate out what yesterday's state felony charges mean for the other states here based on your understanding of where things are. Yeah, I, I, looking at the profiles of these folks in Michigan, it's very similar to what we see in Georgia, right? These are teachers, these are party activists, these are retirees, just a kind of a broad swath of, of, of folks in Georgia. Uh, this is probably an indica- indication of where Fulton County is probably going to go to, right? That would just be my guess. Uh, and I think this is one of the biggest liabilities, these faux electors that showed, I think this is one of the biggest areas of liability, potential liability for Donald Trump and his supporting cast. Right. This is where there was a lot of coordination. There was a lot of uh, conversations. There was a lot of structure coming from the White House or from Donald Trump's campaign as to how to structure these. Because these folks had no idea how to set up a faux electorate slate. Uh, the, the, the hard part to these are some really good people, probably. Right. I don't necessarily know them you know, personally, but these are really good folks that are having to lose their life savings to, to pay for attorneys to cover up. Uh, or to cover their legal charges. These are folks that are just having to just completely train wreck their, their, their profiles in the community, all because a sitting president and a supporting cast told them that this was the right thing to do. So you don't, feel, you don't feel like this was free will on their part? This was purely doing what they were told? I think there was a confusion. I think there's a whole bunch of different scenarios that arrived here. I think some folks showed up because they just literally thought the president of the United States told them it was okay to do it, or his supporting t- attorneys, and so they did it. There's some that, that showed up there with, you know, maybe malintent to think that they're going to sub- subvert democracy and try to run this faux electorate all the way up to the halls of Congress. Well, you raise an interesting point about who's really responsible for 
both the January 6th insurrection, but also some of this stuff that came before it, the fake electors plot. Uh, Maggie, I want to bring you in on this because I think this is going to become a central question as we look at what Jack Smith is looking at here. To what extent was uh, were some of these schemes, especially the fake elector scheme directed by Trump, uh, by his attorneys, by his associates? And what is your sense of the concern in Trump's orbit that there are others who have real legal exposure here? Look, uh, a key, Abby, in terms of this investigation with Jack Smith has been this issue of fake electors in recent weeks. We know this. There have been two tracks that Jack Smith has been focused on, at least, and there may be others, but two that we know of, with witnesses who have come in either just to be interviewed by prosecutors or to appear before the grand jury. But one has been Trump's mindset, which is obvious, and I think we all understand why they'd be looking at that, whether he actually, you know, realized that he had not lost or whether he was under the impression that he had and genuinely believed it. And they've been asking a lot of people that question. And the other is about fake electors. And we know the people who were involved in the so-called fake electors effort have been in to Smith's office to talk to his uh, investigators. I believe some have also gone before the grand jury. There were basically two camps within Trump's campaign. There was the camp arguing, let's move on. And there was the camp that was arguing, let's install these electors in ways that even people who were connected to it raised questions about. Now, you may end up seeing that in, say, Arizona, where my colleague Luke Broadwater and I had some reporting last year that there were internal emails within the campaign where one of the lawyers working with them literally described these electors as fake and then corrected himself and said, alternate's a better word, with a smiley face in the email. Uh, Kelly Ward, a party official out there, had apparently raised questions about whether this was actually legal. So I think you're going to hear a lot more of that going forward. And there is going to be this split about who was involved with what. Katie, uh, you know, Norm Eisen uh, is often uh, talking publicly about these issues, but also worked on uh, some of the investigations on Capitol Hill, uh, longtime attorney on these issues, had a piece where where he hit at an interesting uh element of this. When I saw this all play out yesterday, I was trying to figure out. And he says in this op-ed, by focusing solely on the figures who undertook their acts in Michigan, Ms. Nessel is wisely insulating her case against charges that she overreached, exceeding her jurisdiction. It also leaves a clear lane for Mr. Smith, Jack Smith. If Ms. Uh, Ms. Nessel can move against these individuals in Michigan, Mr. Smith can and should do the same against the ringleaders. And I think what I was trying to figure out yesterday is this is all connected Right. I think it's easy to to view these things in isolation or view them in a vacuum. All of these things are connected to some degree. Do you agree that this either both uh, kind of leaves space for the special counsel, but also almost kind of uh, puts the spurs in to bring uh, his own cases against these same individuals across seven states? Well, I think that these actual charges are very discreet in terms of submitting false signatures and, and certifying something that is actually substantively incorrect. And, and, and any criminal defendant is going to look for other people to blame and to say that it was mitigated because they were misinformed or they were misled or given wrong legal advice even. And so certainly that's going to play a part in all of these defenses. But in the specific state charges, I think you're going to see that they actually signed documentation that asserted incorrect information about their location. And so in terms of actually defending that by saying that you didn't know whether that was lawful or not. I mean, that's going to be an uphill battle for them specifically. And so certainly they will implicate the other people that were involved in that. But those state charges are kind of 
a standalone set of charges, in my opinion. And it does not limit Jack Smith from proceeding federally against any of these same people also, for that matter. Yeah, we've reported these had individuals in from the seven states. Fake electors have clearly been a focus, as Maggie was discussing as well. Um, guys, stay with us. Next hour, Michigan's highest ranking election official, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, will join us. She was interviewed by federal prosecutors in the special counsel's election interference probe. And missiles and explosions lighting up the sky in Odessa, Ukraine. And another night of Russian strikes will take you there live. And new details this morning about the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea and is now believed to be in custody. That's coming up. Well, new overnight, North Korea launching two more ballistic missiles, according to South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff. Seoul reported the short-range missiles landed in the waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. It appears to be a defiant move coming shortly after the U.S. deployed a nuclear-armed submarine to South Korea on Tuesday for the first time in decades. And the launch has come just one week after Pyongyang fired a new ICBM supervised by Kim Jong-un that demonstrated long-range capabilities. And also this morning, a U.S. soldier is believed to be in North Korean custody for the first time in decades. Officials say that Army Private Travis King crossed into North Korea on Tuesday willfully and without authorization. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live for us from the Pentagon with more on this very strange story. What do we know about this Army Private and uh, why did he do this? Yeah, has a lot of officials here scratching their heads, Abby. So what we know is that this is someone named Private Travis King. He was a junior enlisted soldier and he was assigned to U.S. forces Korea. And essentially what appears to have happened here is he was on a tour of the DMZ when he willfully and without authorization crossed that demarcation line into North Korea. Now, the backstory here is interesting because our sources tell us that he was actually held in a detention facility in South Korea for 50 days days facing uh, disciplinary action there for assault charges in South Korea. And he was actually set to be sent back to the United States uh, to face further disciplinary action by the military in the form of actually being separated from the army. But he, when he went to board his flight, he apparently did not get on the plane. Uh, the military officials that were accompanying him could not accompany him as far as the gate. And they essentially lost track of him. He was then able to, at some point, sign up for this tour, went to the DMZ, and then crossed that demarcation line uh, again voluntarily. There is no sign here yet that he was coerced to do so. Now, the U.S. military does say that it is working with its North Korean counterparts to try to resolve this situation. But as we know, the U.S. has not had diplomatic communications with the North Koreans uh, really since President Biden took office. They have tried and tried to reach out to them for talks, and they have simply not responded. So it remains unclear whether the military-to-military channels are going any better here, but we did uh, get a statement, uh, according to ABC, from Travis King's mother, who said, quote, I can't see Travis doing anything like that. She said she last heard from her son a few days ago when he told her he would return soon to his base in Fort Bliss, Texas. And she added that she just, quote, wants him to come home. Abby. First time since 1982, I believe, that something like this has happened. Natasha Bertrand, thank you very much. And later on this morning, we'll take you near the Korean demilitarized zone. A live report from CNN's Will Ripley on the South Korean side of that border ahead. Well, also happening overnight, Russia launching an attack on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. The 
mayor calls it, quote, one of the most horrible nights and the worst attack since the invasion began. No casualties were reported, but a downed Russian missile left several civilians injured. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live in Odessa. Alex, I was watching your reporting last night, Scotty McWinney's work, uh, our photojournalist last night as well. Um, what is the latest on a second day of retaliatory attacks? Well, this was, in the words of the mayor, a fierce battle, and you could see it right there in that clip that Scotty shot. It was just the most incredible display of firepower, certainly, that we ourselves have seen since the beginning of this war. It all started around 2 a.m., those air raid sirens going off, and then very quickly, Phil, after that, anti-aircraft guns firing into the sky, large yellow and red tracers, presumably trying to take down the drones that were attacking this city. We saw large yellow glows from blasts and we heard ex enormous explosions, uh, we believe, from these missiles that were either being intercepted or, or landing. Those explosions sending huge shockwaves all across the city, rattling buildings across Odessa, causing uh, car alarms all along this street where we are and all across the city to go off. This attack by Russia, according to Ukrainian authorities, was a combination of both drones and different types of cruise missiles, more than 60 of them all together being fired from land, sea and air. Uh, there were about half a dozen people who were hurt, no one killed. As you mentioned, there was significant damage, uh, a lot of it in and around the port of Odessa, but we've also seen uh, some of that damage to civilian buildings as well. Uh, now, Russia had said that uh, yesterday that the first night of strikes was a response to that Kerch Bridge attack carried out by Ukraine. But President Zelensky is saying today that they believe uh, that, this is, that this is an attack on that grain deal infrastructure. Remember, Phil, uh, Russia pulling out of that critical grain deal on Monday. Yeah, two major developments over the course of this week, and now we're seeing the aftermath of it. Another development from a couple of weeks ago that is still hanging over everything uh, is the mutiny. It, it failed with Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the head of Wagner. Uh, the head of Britain's MI6 intelligence agency told CNN new details about Prigozhin following last month's short-lived rebellion. What did he say? Yeah, it's still hanging over all this, and, and it's still clearly confusing to Western intelligence agencies who are still trying to figure this out. The head of MI6, which is the equivalent of the, of the U.S. CIA, uh, telling CNN that Prigozhin, when he carried out this insurrection on June 24th, that he started the day as a traitor, uh, he finished the day pardoned, and then he was invited to the Kremlin for tea just a few days later, there was that remarkable meeting by Prigozhin and some of his commanders at the Kremlin uh, on June 29th. Uh, but this, this shows, according to Richard Moore, the head of MI6, uh, that Putin is under pressure, that he did not see this coming. Uh, he says that Putin was forced to cut what he called a humiliating deal to save his skin. Uh, you'll, rec you'll recall that on June 24th, Phil, we heard that the mutiny was suddenly ending, that a deal had been struck brokered by the president of Belarus, uh, saying that Wagner would be going uh, to Belarus. We have seen in the past few days some of those Wagner troops uh, heading uh, into that country. But clearly now, Phil, uh, according to the head of MI6, uh, Putin is rattled. And we believe that he is trying to weaken uh, Prigozhin while trying to keep those Wagner fighters, inviting them to join the Russian military because they are still a considerable fighting force. Phil. All right, Alex Marquardt and team live in Odessa. Great work. Stay safe, my friend.
And Donald Trump could face a third criminal indictment soon. How the former president's congressional allies and his top 2024 rivals are reacting. And 27 years later, a new development in the Tupac Shakur murder investigation will have the latest next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We have a man, the only way he can get elected is to weaponize the Justice Department, which he's gone around doing. Uh, I didn't know practically what a subpoena was and grand juries and all of this. Now I'm like becoming an expert. I have no choice because we have to. It's a disgrace. Uh, if you say something about an election, they want to put you in jail for the rest of your life. We have prosecutors that are evil people. These are evil people, deranged. I call them deranged. That was former President Donald Trump lacking a little fire there, lashing out at a campaign stop in Iowa after learning he's the target of a federal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And new this morning, we're learning more about what was actually in that target letter. Multiple news outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, say a source familiar with the contents of the letter cited at least three statutes, including deprivation of rights, conspiracy to commit an offense against or defraud the United States and tampering with a witness. But Republican lawmakers are jumping to former President Trump's defense. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other members of Congress accused the Justice Department of acting as a weapon for the Biden and Biden Justice Department and the Democrats. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is with us now. So, Lauren, uh, this is more or less what we've come to expect from Republicans on Capitol Hill. Yeah, Abby, this news broke yesterday when House Republicans were actually having a weekly conference meeting behind closed doors, meaning that they may not have had all the nuances of what exactly was part of this target letter. And yet, when they emerged from that meeting, they were so quick to defend former President Donald Trump. Meanwhile, this is just a latest split screen between House Republicans and House Democrats and how they're perceiving the reality of a situation. There's little doubt that former President Trump was very specifically and granularly involved in trying to overturn the results of the legitimate presidential election that he lost. This appears to be the culmination of it, uh, and I expect uh, Donald Trump to be indicted in the near future. Yeah, it's absolute bull****. Yeah, that's my reaction. President Trump went up in the polls and was uh, actually surpassing President Biden for re-election, so what do they do now? Weaponize government. One more ridiculous thing from the Justice Department is as wrong as he gets. And Republicans are vowing to use the power of the appropriations process to try to hold back some funding to the Justice Department, whether it be for a new FBI headquarters or whether it be to the special counsel's office investigating these matters into former President Donald Trump. But we should note that there really is a split screen between how House Republican leadership is dealing with this and how Senate Republican leadership is dealing with this. I tried to ask Mitch McConnell yesterday in the halls specifically about this issue. He did not respond to that question. It's not abnormal that he doesn't talk in the hallways, but we should also note he does not respond to questions about former President Donald Trump's legal woes. You also had John Thune, who's the Republican whip, acknowledging the fact that this continues to be a distraction for the Republican Party. Abby and Phil. You said it. If there is one thing Mitch McConnell knows how to do, it is ignore 
questions about been, Donald we've Trump. We've all been there. We've all been there in the hallways near Ohio clock. All right, just kind of walks Lauren, right Lauren, valiant effort on your part. Thank you very much. Uh, let's bring back now Jeff Duncan and Maggie Haberman. Maggie, I want to start with you because I wonder, uh, you have a piece today about the reaction among Republicans in the New York Times. Uh, are we being naive to wonder when Republicans, either on Capitol Hill or on the campaign trail, will start saying something different about these charges as they pile up against former President Trump? Well, I don't know, Abby, how many indictments this is going to be tested through, but we're now on the potential third one, and there could be a fourth before the end of the summer, uh, it, assuming that this one does go to a third, and we have not seen any difference in what we are hearing from Republicans. There are a, a very small number of Trump's rivals in the presidential primary who are willing to very openly call him out. Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson. You have Ron DeSantis tying himself in knots around this. And you really saw a great example of it yesterday, where the mildest criticism that he issued of Trump and saying Trump could have done more and should have done more on January 6th, and what he appeared to be referring to was to try to stop the violence that was taking place at the Capitol, was then jumped on by his own campaign, who criticized people amplifying it, criticized Trump's advisors who were amplifying it, saying his words are being taken out of context. So I think it reflects, Abby, the dynamics in the Republican primary, which is that a, a number of Republican voters don't want to hear criticism of Trump, do want to hear Republicans defend him, do want to echo what Trump has basically instructed these Republicans to say. And unless folks are willing to take him on directly, and we will see what happens on a debate stage next month, uh, if, if, depending on whether Trump shows up and depending on who makes that debate stage. But we will see what happens in terms of whether people are willing to directly take this on and say more forcefully if they disagree with these indictments. Right now, it's very hard to see what the dynamic is that changes things, and that only benefits Trump. Yeah, the, uh, the Twitter back and forth between the DeSantis team and Trump's folks uh, quoting it was like inception level, um, and <laughs> slightly perplexing yesterday to some degree. Uh, Jeff, I, I want to ask you, you know, uh, Maggie's mentioned that, that Jake Tapper sat down with Ron DeSantis yesterday, and, and his answer on this issue specifically kind of demonstrates his effort to kind of walk a line here. Take a listen. If Jack Smith has evidence of criminality, should Donald Trump be held accountable? So here's the problem. Uh, this country is going down the road of criminalizing political differences. And I think that's wrong. Alvin Bragg stretched a statute in, in Manhattan to be able to try to target Donald Trump. Most people, even people on the left, acknowledge if that wasn't Trump, that case would not have likely been brought uh, against a normal civilian. And so you have a situation where the Department of Justice, FBI, uh, have been weaponized uh, against people they don't like. And the number one example of that happened to be against Donald Trump with the Russia collusion. Uh, that was not a legitimate investigation that was being done to try to drive Trump out of office. And so what I've said as president, my job is to restore a single standard of justice to end weaponization of these agencies. We're going to have a new FBI director on day one. Uh, we're going to have big changes at the Department of Justice. Americans across the political spectrum need to have confidence that what is going on is based on the rule of law, not based on what political tribe you're in. And then the second thing I would say is this country needs to have a debate about the country's future. 
If I'm the nominee, we'll be able to focus on President Biden's failures, and I'll be able to articulate a positive vision for the future. Uh, I don't think it serves us good to have a presidential election focused on what happened four years ago uh, in January. And so I want to focus on looking forward. I don't want to look back. I, I do not want to see him. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. Uh, but at the same time, I've got to focus on looking forward, and that's what we're going to do. Um, just to be clear, Jake's question was, if Jack Smith has evidence of criminality, should Donald Trump be held accountable? There's a hell of an answer um, to that. What does it tell you? With all due respect, that was the worst answer I've ever heard to that question. Uh, it's very simple. Don't, don't, I don't, care. don't hold back. I don't care about <laughs> Donald Trump's legal future. That's his problem. He had his chance and he screwed up. He lost to Joe Biden. If I'm, if I'm Ron DeSantis, I champion the fact I'm a conservative governor. I've got a strong, uh, robust economy. In Florida, I got COVID right. Uh, I talk about the things that I can do for the country. I talk about immigration reform. I talk about opportunities to, to support Vladimir, or, uh, Ukraine. I talk about education and, and, and school choice and the things that helped him win, take Florida from purple to bright red. That's a bad answer. And it should be a lesson to other Republicans that we need to turn the page, right? I mean, we start on second base with policies. Republicans, I believe, in the current environment we're in, and the weak nature of Joe Biden and his administration puts Republicans in, on second base with policy. But yet we never hear about it, right? Certainly we don't hear about it from Donald Trump. We don't hear about it from the candidates or at least a majority of the candidates. That's our best, that's our best foot forward is our policies. But does the base, I mean, he's talking to primary voters. The base, we've got to steer the base in the right direction. They're confused. There's chaos on the battlefield. Donald Trump has poured battery acid in the water. There's infighting. You know, we, we are now confusing loud and crazy for conservative, right? I'm a conservative because I believe in the policies. I believe it's the best way for public safety, national security, taxation, orders, all of that. that. That's why I'm a Republican. That's why I'm a conservative. But so many people are confused. I think Donald Trump, look, I'm optimistic. My wife says I think the glass is over, overflowing. <laughs> I'm optimistic in that I think Americans and Republicans are going to wake up and realize that Donald Trump supports a mile wide and an inch deep. They want an excuse to not vote for him. And these indictments are not helping. There's nobody in the middle that's waking up saying, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. He got indicted right. again. Uh -huh. oh. We'll find out what happens. Uh, Ron DeSantis will probably have another opportunity to take a stab at that answer. Maggie Haberman and, uh, uh, and Jeff, thank you both very much. We'll have much more on these latest developments and all of these investigations after a very quick break. Some remarkable thing you may have missed yesterday. 27 years later, police in Las Vegas have executed a search warrant in the Tupac Shakur murder case. Now, the rapper was shot and killed on the Las Vegas Strip back in 1996. He was in the car with Death Row Records CEO Suge Knight. Authorities believe Tupac was the target, but the murders remained unsolved all these years. Police say they executed the latest search warrant at a location in Henderson, Nevada, but they're not saying anything else at the moment. And here's another Las Vegas story for you. At least one person got sick inside of a Delta plane that was stuck on the tarmac there in triple-digit heat. The temperature outside was 111 degrees, and there was no air conditioning in the cabin. A passenger tells us what happened next. It was just like chaos at this point. There was a woman walking up the aisle. She looked like she was about to just pass out. They ended up putting an oxygen mask on her. People had thrown up. People had fainted, you know, gone to the bathroom. But she said she got, many people got sick from the heat, including the flight crew, and the flight to Atlanta was ultimately canceled. The airline has apologized and released this statement. Delta teams are looking into the circumstances that led to uncomfortable temperatures 
inside of that cabin. And uncomfortable is another statement. CNN This Morning continues right now. Trump facing a barrage of developments in multiple federal criminal investigations. These are significant charges, potentially, with serious jail time, and he knows this. The DOJ has become a weapon for the Democrats. He is trying to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the entire justice system. The case could be indicted by the end of the week. In some ways, it kind of looks like a publicity stunt. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. History will hold him to account for his actions that day. Michigan Attorney General announcing charges against 16 people in the fake elector scheme. To reject the will of the voters was fraudulent and legally baseless. If convicted, they could face decades in prison here. This was knowingly trying to break the law to overturn the will of the people. Judge Eileen Cannon is pushing back on prosecutors' proposed mid-December trial date. I'm protected by Presidential Records Act. We can't keep dealing with this drama. We can't keep dealing with the negativity. I think this is a golden opportunity for somebody in this field to step up. Every time President Trump goes up in the polls, they come after him. Legally, pretty bad day. Politically, just another day in Trump world. Well, good Tuesday morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Abby Phillip is back here with me. And we should note, legally, it was a very bad day and also a day that underscored just how much is surrounding the former president when it comes to potential criminal charges, including potential third and maybe even fourth indictments looming ahead. This one tied specifically to a target letter that was sent to the former president regarding efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The Wall Street Journal and other sources now report that according to a source familiar with that letter, it cites at least three laws, including deprivation of rights, conspiracy to commit an offense against or defraud the United States, and tampering with a witness. Trump was defiant in a Fox News town hall last night. He accused the Justice Department of being a political weapon. We have a man, the only way he can get elected is to weaponize the Justice Department, which he's gone around doing. Uh, I didn't know practically what a subpoena was and grand juries and all of this. Now I'm like becoming an expert. I have no choice because we have to. It's a disgrace. Uh, if you say something about an election, they want to put you in jail for the rest of your life. We have prosecutors that are evil people. These are evil people. Deranged. I call them deranged. Meanwhile, in Michigan, the state's attorney general has brought felony charges against 16 fake electors who signed certificates falsely claiming that Trump had won the election. And in Florida, a federal judge is signaling that she may push back the start date of Trump's criminal trial for allegedly mishandling classified documents. She suggested that mid-December is actually too soon. We have full team coverage on all of these angles and these big developments, starting with Paula Reed, who's live outside of the federal courthouse in Fort Pierce, Florida. Ellie Honig and David Axelrod, also Alyssa Farrah Griffin, are standing by for the legal and political analysis of all of this. But uh, Ellie, I I do want you to tell us uh, what you are learning about these statutes from the target letter. Yeah, so first of all, we're hearing that the potential charges here could include conspiracy to, to conspiracy to defraud the United States. So that's not a surprise, and that tells us that Jack Smith is taking a very broad view of this. There also could be a charge relating to deprivation of civil rights. What civil right could that be? Well, that would be the right to a free and fair election, the right for everyone to have their votes counted. And finally, we're learning that there could be a witness tampering charge. That's a bit of a surprise, although Donald Trump does have also a bit of a history relating to witness tampering. 
The, what's also notable here, Abby, is what's not apparently going to be part of the charges, or at least what's not been listed in the target letter. There's no listing of an insurrection charge or an incitement of insurrection charge. So that's significant both for what's in there and what's not in there. It tells us, Phil, that Jack Smith is taking a very broad view of this, and he's looking at this as a conspiracy. Right. What, what conduct is the special prosecutor most likely focused on at this point? Yeah, so... It's clear that Jack Smith is taking a very broad view here. He is looking at this as really a seven-state strategy focused on these seven states, all of which went for Joe Biden, but Donald Trump and people around him decided to try to steal at any cost. They started by pressuring state officials. Most famously, Donald Trump made that famous phone call to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, where he urged him, I just want to find 11,780 votes. We also know that as part of this effort, Donald Trump and others were involved in the creation of these false elector certificates. This is the one from Michigan, as you just talked about. There have now been state-level charges lodged against the actual people who signed and claimed to be the rightly elected electors for Donald Trump. Of course, Donald Trump did not win Michigan or those other states. We also know that when that failed, Donald Trump and others engaged in a pressure campaign aimed at the vice president, Mike Pence. He, of course, resisted. We know he's a witness in this case now, a very important witness. And then we know that when Donald Trump ultimately was frustrated that Mike Pence would not do the unconstitutional things Donald Trump wanted him to do, Donald Trump sent an inflammatory tweet while the riot was happening saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And that further inflamed the rioters. So that's the focus up until the actual date of January 6th. And we also know the final chapter here is when Donald Trump goes out on the ellipse makes his speech to the rally, and then people storm the Capitol. Although, again, according to the reporting, in, uh, incitement of an insurrection is not among the charges that have been listed. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. We've all been trying to figure out what potential charges would be, or at least talking to lawyers to figure out what yeah. potential charges could be, based on what we saw in, uh, what we've seen from the reporting uh, from the Wall Street Journal and others related to the three statutes listed in the target letter. I'm interested in the complexity of the potential case if those are the potential charges pursued. Yeah, so if you look at deprivation of civil rights and conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States, those are going to cover largely the same ground. We're going to talk about the whole scheme that we just laid out. I think Jack Smith's doing this intentionally because he wants to be able to show that this is, in fact, a coordinated effort that went across the country and that hit at the state, local, and federal levels. I think also... If we look at tampering with a witness, that's really important because, first of all, who will this witness be? Uh, Donald Trump does have a history from the Mueller investigation on of trying to influence what witnesses say. And that could be really damaging. That's a crime on its own. And it shows corrupt intent as to the broader picture here. So, again, those, I think, are not surprising. It shows that Jack Smith is trying to view this as a whole and not getting into the more complicated, perhaps more inflammatory charges related to insurrection. OK, Ellie Honig, thank you. Abby, you got the panel. Let's go now to Paula Reed, live outside of the federal courthouse in Fort Pierce, Florida. So, Paula, lots of developments right now on multiple fronts. Uh, you have some new reporting on the time crunch here that Jack Smith is facing with both of these investigations that he's in charge of. That's right, Abby. We know one of the few things that special counsel Jack Smith has, has ever said publicly is that he wants a, quote, speedy trial in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And it's expected that if if the former president is charged in the January 6th investigation, that they would also want a speedy trial. They would want to prosecute this case before the election. And if that is the goal, 
They need to move it along pretty quickly. But we know even if the former president is charged in the coming weeks, that the special counsel's work will continue because we've learned that they have reached out to multiple new witnesses in recent weeks. One of those witness interviews isn't scheduled until August. Another one, not even on the calendar. And we expect them to hear from additional witnesses as soon as tomorrow. So we know even if Trump is charged, the special counsel's work is going to continue. So it does not appear that they're going to wait until they get the, to the end of the entire investigation to send former President Trump a target letter and likely charge him. Now, we know, of course, the likely strategy on the, from the Trump team will be to delay, delay, delay. That's the strategy he has used for decades. And yesterday here in Fort Pierce, for the first time, we got to see just how receptive the federal judge overseeing the Mar-a-Lago documents case would be to these efforts to try to push this trial back. And Abby, it's interesting. She was open definitely to pushing this back. She so, said that the special counsel's suggestion of doing this in December, that that was a, quote, compressed timeline. She said, look, cases like this, they just take more time. Now, she was not willing, though, to leave it open indefinitely. She was really focused on getting the lawyers to give her more information about how much time they need to do the work necessary to prepare for trial. She didn't want to get into arguments about his status as a candidate. She wants to know how long it's going to take them to at least get to the place where they can maybe put a date on the calendar. And it's unclear if that'll be next year before the election or after. That is a very significant question uh, that we'll all be looking for an answer for. Paula Reed, thank you very much. And now we're going to talk to the panel. I was so excited Finally. to see David Axelrod's smiling David face at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I, I just wanted to rush over here. I would never intentionally skip Paula and her great reporting. Uh, David Axelrod is here. Alyssa Fair Griffin is here. Um, Alyssa, when you kind of look at the former president's response to the Target letter yesterday. The fact he was the one who broke the news. Uh, he's done that a couple times now with these Target letters. But then his response yesterday, what he said last night in Iowa, how do you think he's taking this specific uh, potential indictment? Well, listen, he, he clung to some of the same lines he's been using. I'm being indicted for you, trying to say we have a weaponized Department of Justice. But for a while, the Trump team has said that they're most legally worried about the uh, the documents case, the Mar-a-Lago documents, classified documents, because it's much more of a straightforward case. But the politics of relitigating January 6th is something they're very worried about, because this means for weeks, if not months on end, we are going to be talking about his worst day in office. People are going to relive that footage. They're going to see people like Officer Fanon talk about what happened that day. So he's going to project that he's not upset about it, but I guarantee that he is worried, especially as, you know, there is a primary underway. He's running actively for president right now. So he's, he, he, listen, he's, he's going to keep using the same lines, but this is a factor for him. It, it, it's such an interesting point because it strikes me that David, this is kind of like a trap door, not just for Trump, but for the entire Republican Party. When you hear Ron DeSantis's reaction to Jake Tapper to this question, he is twisting himself into a pretzel. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, it seems likely that where he and others are going to end up is actually having to kind of defend the actions leading up to January 6th, defend yes. January 6th? Yeah, well, that's the game of Twister they're playing because the Republican electorate is where the Republican electorate is. You know, I saw a poll this week, and 55% of Republicans said they thought Donald Trump would be their strongest candidate. Even after all of this, there is devotion to him. And this, you say the lines that he's been using, they're not just lines, they're fundamental to his strategy. Mm -hmm. His strategy now is built around these indictments. He has made himself 
uh, the victim on behalf of his constituents. And, you know, I, I keep saying, I don't know whether these bricks that are added to his load with each of these indictments are kryptonite or energy packs in the Republican race. And that's what remains to be seen. Is there too much at some point? Do they add up to the point where people say, you know, I love them? But it's just too much trouble. And, and, and that's what we don't know. Well, and what's kind of stunning is, you know, to Ellie's reporting and others is there's no guarantee that any of these cases are going to be litigated ahead of the election. So the fact that the Republicans in the field running against Donald Trump in a primary seem to not be taking him on directly, not criticizing him, not using these indictments to challenge him. It's a flawed strategy. It's like they're waiting in the wings for him to be locked up. But we don't know that that's ever going to happen, or at least not ahead of the election. Can I just make a larger point, because I think the trapdoor is not just for the Republican Party, it's for the country. Mm. The strategy that they have employed and that Trump has insisted on is to uh, denigrate the whole process, mm. to, to call the FBI corrupt, to call the D- Department of Justice corrupt. This has a corrosive impact, not just, you know, it's not just a, an effect on one election, it's an effect on our democracy. And I think there's going to be lo- there are going to be longstanding implications of that. I, I think that's actually a, a really good point. I think we view things in a day by day basis. Or what does this mean for poll numbers? I, I think we have the answer, by the way, of what this is going to do to Trump's numbers inside the primary. I don't think there's ever going to be a tipping point. People have been thinking there's going to be a tipping point for, what, seven or eight years now. But when Speaker Kevin McCarthy comes out and says uh, they saw Trump's poll numbers were going up and he was now leading Joe Biden. And therefore, that is why they brought the like. That's, I mean, there, A, there's no evidence. B, it's based on absolutely nothing at all. And C, he knows that's you know. completely oh, and absurd. Yes. He's the and I think that's the issue that I have. Yeah. Is, I mean, honestly, to your point, there are long-term implications uh, of, of doing things like that that are much bigger than whether or not you're front-runner. Uh, and I want to make this point. People can interpret it as, uh, as a partisan point. It, it is not, I would feel, the same way under any circumstance. What Kevin McCarthy is doing really is a betrayal of his responsibilities as a as one of the leading officers in the United States government. He does know better. He's doing it for political reasons. And it has real impact on the quality of our democracy. And we know that because we know Kevin McCarthy's words after January 6th. I'm done with this guy. He bears responsibility. Um, yet he's still undermining this. Most of these people said different things right after January 6th. And it's interesting to see them really backtracking now. But David and Alyssa, don't go anywhere. Uh, We have some new reporting on what's been going on behind the scenes with the Trump team and the legal strategy that they're planning to fight back against other possible indictments. And Michigan Secretary of State will join us live after felony charges were brought against fake electors who falsely claimed Trump won the 2020 election in her state. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. For the very first time, suspects have been charged in a 2020 fake elector scheme. 16 Republicans in Michigan are charged with trying to help President Trump overturn the election results. The group met in Lansing back in December of 2020, and they signed certificates falsely claiming that Trump won the state and that they were the rightful electors. They were turned away from the Michigan State House while the actual group of Democratic electors was meeting inside. And an audio recording obtained by CNN early last year captured one of the fake electors boasting that the Trump campaign had directed the entire operation. We fought to see the electors um, the Trump campaign asked us to do that. I'm under a lot of scrutiny for that today. 
This is the first time any of the fake electors have been charged with a crime related to that election scheme, which is, of course, also being investigated by special counsel Jack Smith. And joining us now on all of this is Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. She's the state's highest-ranking election official and someone uh, who has also spoken to Jack Smith in the January 6th probe. Uh, uh, Secretary Benson, thank you for joining us this morning. I I do want to ask you about what you just heard there, what we just played, a fake elector saying the Trump campaign asked us to do that. But I wonder, is there a case here that they could make that they were misled or that these were just provisional, just in case they won other legal challenges? Do you see them making those arguments and that there's evidence to back that up? Well, certainly a lot of arguments are going to be made, but I think the evidence really shows that this was an actionable, well-thought-out plan. The affidavit suggests that individuals were led into the basement of the party headquarters, and some chose, including a a former Secretary of State, Terry Lynn Land, chose not to be a part of it, which should have been a sign uh, that something was awry. She had to then be replaced. Uh, And so there's a number of pieces to suggest uh, that these individuals were very aware of what they were trying to do. attempting to do, and then submitting the documents to the National Archives through which they came to my office. Uh, Also indicates that this wasn't just a ceremony. This was actually an attempt to lie to the government about where the Michigan electoral votes should be allocated. And there simply has to be culpability for anyone involved from those who actually committed the acts to, in my view, anyone who helped organize them. Uh, And to that end, uh, there were probably other people involved if the Trump campaign was involved, people like Rudy Giuliani, even the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. Um, Are you surprised that more people at higher levels weren't also part of the charges here? The attorney general in Michigan has said this is part of an ongoing investigation. So I think this is the first step, uh, perhaps the first in an ongoing effort to not just seek justice for those who are actively involved uh, at the the front end of this scheme, uh, but everyone involved. And so there may be additional charges filed in the future. We'll see how the case progresses. My office is going to fully cooperate with all legal efforts to bring everyone who ran afoul of the law and tried to subvert a legitimate presidential election, bring them to justice. One of those 16 fake electors, Mishan Maddock, went on to become the co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party. She accused the state's AG, Dana Nessel, of a personal vendetta, and she added that this was part of a coordinated uh, effort to stop Trump. What's your response to those accusations? Well, first, there was a coordinated effort. It was a coordinated effort to overturn the will of the voters, not just in Michigan, but in many other states. And that's a coordinated effort we've been consistently not just shedding a light on, but fighting over the last several years. I mean, secondly, when, as the affidavit suggests, there's overwhelming evidence that the law was violated, particularly with regards to elections. The attorney general, and she said this yesterday, has a responsibility to bring charges. It would be a political act to not bring charges in the in the face of overwhelming evidence. And so I think uh, what you have here is the facts and the law driving the case forward. And any individuals who are part of an effort to overturn an election should, in my view, face justice so that we ensure it doesn't happen again. So special counsel Jack Smith uh, is also, as everyone knows, actively investigating uh, January 6th, the fake electors plot as well. You spoke to federal prosecutors back in March. Uh, I wonder, did they ask you about the fake elector plot? And did they ask you about anything that has not yet been made public? 
Well, there's a lot that was discussed, and I don't want to compromise the, 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 the investigation itself, but I will say, just as my testimony before the January 6th Congressional Committee really emphasized, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, federal, a need for the federal government to look at the way in which the instances we experienced in Michigan happened in other states and get to the bottom of the facts in every state. But in addition to that, these actions to overturn an election, to lie to legislators and voters about the accuracy of the presidential election in Michigan and elsewhere led to actual threats and violence, not just at the Capitol on January 6th, but in other parts of the country as well, including outside my home. And so that I think also is there, there's, um, there's a focus there and should be, in my view, about the way in which this effort was not simply on its own an effort to overturn an election, but an effort that generated violence, threats, uh, and in you know in in the tragedy at our U.S. Capitol, uh, you know a, a detrimental effect on our democracy and the law enforcement officers who were defending it that day. You've said in the past that there has been no real accountability for former President Trump spreading misinformation about the election. And you added that without that accountability, we must expect to see it continue. Do you think that a likely indictment for Trump here would send a message and have an impact? I think any time there are consequences for breaking the law, it has an impact on those considering doing it in the future. And so we need to consider not just that, but what the path is if there are no consequences, if there, despite overwhelming evidence that the law was violated, if there are not indictments brought. That also sends a signal that you can get away with trying to overturn a legitimate presidential election. And I believe that that's not what our democracy is about. And I believe that's the wrong signal to send as we go into a, what, by all accounts, is going to be another contentious presidential election. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thank you for your time this morning. All right, Thanks to, for having me. We want to bring back in the panel Lisa Farah, David Axelrod, Ali Honegger back with us. Ali, this is probably a simplistic question for uh, lawyers like yourself. Uh, but can you explain to me state charges versus what the special counsel is doing? Like, do these things not run into one another? Is there a separation here? How does this all work? I think the charges that we're seeing out of Michigan here are going to be a subset of what we will see from Jack Smith. I think Jack Smith will charge, given what we just discussed about what, what we've learned about what the likely federal charges are. I think all of the fake electors from all of the seven states will become part of Jack Smith's case. I don't mean to suggest Jack Smith will criminally charge those fake electors, but the scheme itself will become part of Jack Smith's case. And I think it's worth noting how quickly things change because as of 24 hours ago, right now, nobody had been charged for anything relating to January 6th and the coup attempt other than the people who physically stormed the Capitol or who directly supervised that, directly were involved in the physical storming of the Capitol. Now we have these fake electors charged with fraud crimes and it seems quite clear that Donald Trump is on the road to catching a charge of his own from the federal system. Yeah, and uh, Alyssa, uh, the Secretary of State brought up something I think maybe gets overlooked here, which is that she faced real threats. Mm -hmm. And there was a, an anecdote where uh, Trump allegedly uh, said that she should be tried for treason and in, in a White House meeting around the time that they were discussing uh, these lies around the election, there were real consequences and threats of violence even beyond the Capitol. And I think people forget that. Um, I think of Cassidy Hutchinson, who testified before the January 6th committee and cooperated with DOJ. She got many threats to her life. She had to have security around her for a period of time. A number of people who spoke out, you know, all got the messages and the things that you'd expect to. But she also hit on something very important that we can't lose sight of in all of this. This could happen again. 
Donald Trump very well may be the Republican nominee. He very well may lose to Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is again. And then what happens? There have been efforts underway to try to get loyalists to him and to Secretary of State jobs, to try to get people elected at the, uh, the state house level so that they can challenge election results in the future. And I don't think that our democracy has necessarily healed or prepared from this day, uh, January you, 6, 2021. There's a more serious question, which is, what if he wins? Because it's very clear that if he wins, he's going to try and vacate all of these charges. And then there'll be no accountability yeah. for all of these schemes. So, you know, there are big there are big worries here. But you asked a question that I think was really important. These uh, people who executed this alleged scheme in Michigan, as well as the people who stormed the Capitol, some percentage of them did it because they were told and they testified this. The president of the United States said there was fraud here. We, we were cheated. Democracy was. And they acted on what they were told. And that goes to the fundamental point we were making before. What is the effect of all of this on the nature of our democracy, the quality of our democracy, the ability of it to carry forward? Yeah. All right. Everybody stay with us. We've got a lot more on this. We've also learned that Donald Trump's advisors spent yesterday morning trying to see if anyone else had received a target letter from the special counsel. So what is their strategy now? We're going to get into that next. This morning, Donald Trump and his team will continue strategizing ways to defend him against potential charges in the special counsel probe of his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump has also downplayed legal challenges while he campaigned in Iowa last night. CNN's Elena Treen is right down the street from Bedminster, New Jersey. Uh, Elena, what do you know right now? You guys have had some great reporting over the course of the last 15 or 16 hours. But what they're doing this morning is they head in after that Iowa visit in terms of preparation for another potential indictment. Right. Well, they are continuing to call lawyers and allies and trying to figure out what exactly the potential case against the former president may look like. Uh, we also know that they are leaning into this politically. We saw Donald Trump's campaign blast off a fundraising email last night. We've seen them do this uh, in the previous two indictments against him. Of course, he's not been indicted in this case yet, but they're already seizing on the political momentum. And as for how Donald Trump is feeling, I think it's interesting to note that after his lawyers received this target letter on Sunday night, Donald Trump kept it unusually quiet. He did not share it widely within members, um, within his inner circle. And uh, I think it shows that he's this is weighing on him. He recognizes how serious these charges are. And of course, as he said before, he does not want to be indicted. And he echoed this sentiment during a town hall with Sean Hannity last night. Let's listen to that exchange. No, it bothers me. It bothers me for everybody in this incredible sold out audience. And it's uh, it bothers you. I got the letter on Sunday night. Think of it. I don't think they've ever sent a letter on Sunday night. And they're in a rush because they want to interfere. It's interference with the election. It's election interference. Never been done like this in the history of our country. And it's a disgrace. So, Phil, he said he admitted that this bothers him, but he also put on a much more defiant uh, message in that town hall with Sean Hannity. But as we know, and from covering the past two indictments, the public face that Donald Trump is putting on is quite different from the one that he's feeling behind closed doors. He is very concerned about this. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that uh, throughout the next couple of days as we see whether or not an indictment is coming. Phil. All right. Elena Treenforce, thank you. And our panel is back with us, Alyssa, Ellie, and David Axelrod. 
Uh, Alyssa, I want to start with you. Uh, from a legal perspective, this is obviously very serious. Do you see uh, a smart, coherent legal strategy, not, not a public relations one, but do you see the Trump world really getting their hands around the legal liability here? I mean, Donald Trump's challenge, frankly, has been retaining quality legal counsel. And when you don't pay your lawyers on time, when you've got so many different cases that you're dealing with, and you're also somebody who's known to go on air and undermine your own case, it's challenging to retain uh, good legal counsel. But to Elena's point, he's still going to try to win the public relations war around this, the political war around it. And what he's going to do, as we've seen already, is try to fundraise off of they're coming after me. It's an attack on you. It probably works in a primary. Um, I, I don't see anyone standing up and challenging him in a major way, with the exception of a few of the candidates that are polling lower. But it's radioactive in a general election. And that's just what, what stuns me when I hear the Kevin McCarthy's and Elise Stefanik defend him is if this guy is the nominee, this, there is, this is winning him no voters. It is losing him even more in a general election. David, that's actually been my biggest question throughout, particularly in terms of the other Republican primary candidates refusing to attack or refusing to take this head on. Um, because I don't know what's going to change at any point. But we were talking about uh, during the break that you can write kind of the progression of the day when an indictment letter comes out. You know exactly how yeah. Trump is going to respond. Yeah. You know Practice exactly how Kevin McCarthy is going to respond. You know exactly <laughs> as we head into potential number three, maybe with number four hanging out there. But it's a general election question. The end game here and what is it? And maybe I'm giving too much credit that there is one. Well, Other yeah, than I mean, when and... First of all, you, you ask what it... Just... just to build into that, you ask what his legal strategy is. His legal strategy is to try and force us into a general election and hope that in a race with Joe Biden, that questions about Biden and his age and so on will be such that he can win. You know, Biden always says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Well, Trump is counting on the same theory. So that that is what uh, the theory is. But there's no doubt that uh, among voters outside of the Republican base, this aggregation of charges is a very, very serious problem for him. And I don't know what the solution is. But in terms of his public, you say, call it a public relations strategy, I think part of what he's doing is a legal strategy. Yeah. He's got a jury down in Florida. Uh, I'm sure they're hearing some of this. Uh, and uh, all he needs is one juror to say, you know, I think they're being unfair to this guy. And he gets off. So, look, we heard the January 6th committee hearings, a lot of what we see or we're seeing unfold here was revealed and disclosed in those hearings. I'm sure Jack Smith has more. Trump knows he's got there. There are a lot of facts against him here, and he's pushing all the buttons trying to get out of jail here. One of the buttons he's pushing is attacking Jack Smith, calling him uh, yesterday deranged. He's called him a lot of other things recently, too. Yeah, look, there's absolutely no call for that. I mean, Jack Smith has done nothing but handle this job professionally and in line with the book. He's done everything by the book. And believe me, I'll be the first to call out a prosecutor who does not. So those uh, attacks on prosecutors are nothing new for Donald Trump. They're incredibly damaging. And all we can do is call them out. And I think to David and Alyssa's point, this is where politics and law are going to collide. I mean, over the next... 18, 16 months until the election. And there's, if there's one overarching legal strategy, it's to delay. I mean, that's Donald Trump's best bet. He got some good news on that yesterday from the Mar-a-Lago case where the judge did not set a trial date. She might. She might set it soon. Was it good news, but, though? She said it seemed like she had issues with December, but not... Yeah. Also seemed to dismiss the idea of let's wait until the, after the election. Well, so I think what she resisted is I'm not going to now in July of 2023 set a trial date for after November of 2024. I think what's likely to happen is she will set a trial date. 
It will be later than December, but it will be before the election. But trial dates move. They move back. And it's like an airport delay. They'll move you back 45 minutes at a time until next thing you know, it's, it's too late. Talk about a giant loophole, constitutional loophole. You can just run and, run, run and win the presidency and get out of jail free. <laughs> you make that seem a lot easier than I think it is. Maybe <laughs> running your campaign. <laughs> All right, David, Alyssa, Ellie, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And Trump supporters say all of this will only help him in the polls. Harry Enten is here to show us what happened to his numbers after the first two indictments. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she does not expect the economy to enter a recession. We'll break down the data. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that she does not expect a recession to hit the United States. Her comments come about a week after she wouldn't rule out one. And she's not the only economist to say that a recession and those fears are now dwindling. CNN chief business correspondent Christine Romans is here with us. And Christine, uh, the economy (laughs) is chugging along and we are still waiting for this recession. Good morning. This has been the longest recession watch in in memory. You know, last year, the conventional wisdom was there'd be a recession in 2023. Now, they're pushing that into 2024, if at all. Goldman Sachs says maybe a 20% chance of a recession down from 25%. We saw retail sales that are, are growing yesterday, growing for the third month in a row. There have been all these dire predictions of a consumer that's going to be tapped out. But so far, the consumer is still moving along here. And let's listen to what the Treasury Secretary said about a, a so-called soft landing yesterday. Growth is slowed, but our labor market continues to be quite strong. Um, I don't expect a recession. I, I think that we're on a good path to bringing inflation down. So, you know, just six months ago, you'd be in the minority if you said that we would have a soft landing. And now more people are starting to say that could be possible. I mean, look at the stock market. The Dow and the S&P are just 5% away from record highs and the highest levels of the year. So investors are not seeing some sort of a recession on the horizon. And she, you heard the Treasury Secretary there talk about inflation. I wanted to show you one of the big complaints has been that wages have been rising, but that fatter paycheck is more than made up for by the higher cost of everything you're buying. That's finally turned. You now have wages growing faster uh, than consumer prices, inflation. And that is something that people will start to feel. So I think there are storm clouds on the horizon, no question more. Fed rate hikes, you're going to have student loan bills are going to be coming due in a couple of months. That could ding consumer spending a little bit. But those those storm clouds on the horizon, right now, it's sunny skies. When you dig into those numbers, you look at things like black unemployment, you yeah. look at things like the lower end of the economic spectrum. Those people are struggling with higher prices, but the, but it's trending in the right direction. And the jobs for African-American unemployment is at historic lows right now. And that's been something that you've heard the White House talk about and some of these really important demographic numbers within the labor market. We'll be watching to see if the labor market can remain strong. And there's still a lot of tightening, right? The Fed has been raising interest rates. We haven't felt all of that quite yet. And that may that may put a little bit of a damper on the job market. Can we do the pour me another real quick? Yeah, yeah if this is a recession, bartender, pour me another. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> Romans, we love it. Thank you, my friend. All right, well, how are Republicans in Congress reacting to the news that Donald Trump could be indicted again? You're probably used to it. Defiance and some optimism? Listen to this. 
Every time they indict him, his numbers go up. So um. Donald Trump's the leader of our party, and Donald Trump is going to beat Joe Biden in 2024 for a second time. Why are they doing everything they can to prevent him from being on the ballot in 2024? I'll tell you why. Because Donald Trump will win in 2024. And the left just, they're, they're scared as you just heard, some Republicans think the target letter sent by special counsel Jack Smith will actually help the former president in his 2024 presidential bid. What does the data actually say? Well, CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Itton, joins us now. Harry, what does it say? All right, so let's take the Republican side of the aisle first. All right, Trump's share in the GOP primary polls. Look at this, pre-New York indictment, post. 46% in those national polls pre, post, look at that. He jumped up to 53%, so it helped him. But the Florida indictment, right, in terms of the classified documents, didn't actually help him. He actually dropped a few percentage points. But basically, I think the main thing to take away from this is Republican voters didn't really care about, the, certainly the Florida indictment, the New York one might have actually helped him. You know, the idea that, I think it's important to note, the letter doesn't guarantee that Trump will be indicted for the third time this year. But we do know the first two indictments uh, had an effect. You're obviously showing the effect at this point. What, what are we looking for next? Yeah, so, you know, let's take a look at the general election. And I think this gives you an understanding here, which is you might have thought, okay, in the Republican primary, it might have helped him. But what about in the general election? Look at this. No change. 43% in the polls against Biden pre, 43% post in New York. Look at Florida, 43% pre, 44% post, right within that margin of error. And I'll just note, what is the one thing that might, in fact, impact Trump's approval or Trump's standing Republicans and the general election? I would love to hear the answer to this question. January 6th actually made an impact. Look at this. His, approval jo- his job approval rating as president on January 5th was 43% overall. It dropped to 39% on January 20th when he left office. Among Republicans, it's 89%, very high. 83%, still very high, but a clear drop. So we'll see if this potential third indictment, it could, in fact, have an impact. We'll just have to wait and see. I mean, thank you, Harry. Thank you. Numbers matter. Numbers Harry matter. matters. Harry, and you matter too, Phil. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. All right. Trump is accusing the DOJ of serving as a weapon for Democrats as he braces for a possible third indictment. Now, we'll talk to the lead counsel at one of Trump's impeachment trials about the legal trouble that he could be facing next. What has been our big story all morning, former President Trump appears close to facing his third indictment in a matter of months. He revealed he's a target in the special counsel investigation of, of efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, the Wall Street Journal and other sources report the special counsel's target letter cites at least three statutes, including deprivation of rights, conspiracy to commit an offense against or defraud the United States and tampering with a witness. CNN chief legal analyst Laura Coates joins us now, along with David Sean. He served as the lead counsel for one of Trump's impeachment trials. And David, I want to start with you in terms of your reaction to the three statutes uh, that are being reported to have been in the target letter. What does that tell you? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, uh, just for by way of background, target letter is not required, but it's informative. It's under Section 911-153 of the DOJ manual. They encourage the prosecutors to give the target some notice. But an indictment wouldn't be limited to whatever's in the target letter. And as I say, it's not required. What I would think in this case, if I were a betting person and I'm not, would be that the charges would be something like this. Conspiracy for sure, under Section 371, um, 
and that's a general conspiracy statute. But here the conspiracy probably is going to be something like, um, you know, related to the false electors um, and maybe Section 1001 false statements. I would think after that, probably an obstruction charge. And that's this defrauding the government. The conspiracy charge also would require defrauding the government. But in these cases, they'd have to show, first of all, under the obstruction charge, that's Section 1512, which is a 20-year count. They'd have to charge, uh, show that he acted corruptly. But they also have to charge in this conspiracy count that he believed that he lost the election and acted accordingly. I think the big thing with the, uh, to turn up the heat uh, politically and sort of criminally would be if they charged insurrection under 2383. And I say turn up the heat, while that's a 10-year count instead of a 20-year count, the sort of juice, you might say, they think at the end would be that the statute provides that a person convicted under that for insurrection couldn't hold public office. And that relates again to the 14th Amendment, Section 3. But again, that has to be weighed against the uh, qualifications for president in Article 2, Section 1. So I'm not sure that's a gimme anyway. But anyway, I hope I'm not being too technical. But I think those are some of the charges you would see. Well, Laura's, Laura's here, and she understands everything you're saying. So we're good on the panel from it the technical like a, perspective. It was like a shot of coffee for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved it. <laughs> I, I, I love the technicalities because we have to really get into the nitty-gritty details here as we get closer to a possible indictment. I mean, Laura, I, I, want, I do want you to react to what David just said, though, which is on this idea of uh, that uh, the, the intent here. We know that Jack Smith has been looking at uh, Trump's mindset. So as a layperson, explain to me uh, what he is looking for and how he would prove it as, a, as it relates to what Trump intended when it comes to these January 6 charges. Well, listen, every lawyer may think they're a know-it-all, but none of us are actual mind readers. And the way that you actually get to the intent is either by direct evidence or statements that have been made or um, circumstantial evidence or contextual clues, as in testimony from somebody else about what the person said. We've already seen through the January 6th investigation committee witnesses that several have talked about his direct statements about believing he had lost the election, but wanting to have a different course of action in the public square nonetheless. And so all of that will be a part of the conversation. But David's right in terms of the possibilities here. The world kind of is the legal oyster, according to whatever evidence has come in from the grand jury for someone like Jack Smith, the special counsel. You have not only the January 6th hearings, but you also have, as one of the charges that's laid out there potentially in a target letter, tampering with a witness. That should be a red flag that tells you that somebody who has been meaningful to this investigation had a kind of roadblock <clears throat> where somebody tried to either interfere with their testimony, undermine it in some way, threaten or otherwise intimidate. And so for that to be outlined as a no there suggests that there is likely somebody who is either cooperating or somebody who is a witness that they actually need who is not able or was not able to fully um, have the opportunity to speak freely. And so that's a real concern. But in far, as far as how you understand all of this, a lot of this, of course, the conspiracy statements, the defraud, all these little buzzwords legally, what it comes down to are three real buckets. What happened before January 6th and post-election? What happened on January 6th? And what happened following January 6th for the investigation? The theme and connective tissue here is the behavior, the planning, and the intent. But Trump is not unlike many other defendants where you have to prove one's intent in an intent-based crime. 
It's not as if suddenly everybody else is able to have their mind read. You always have to use different evidence and the surrounding evidence to lead a jury to believe that you have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that in spite of all common sense, all evidence available, all statements of a reasonable person, one's head was in the sand nonetheless. That's really the course of action here. David, we've only got about a minute left, so we can't do statutes as much as I I love them and I'm impressed by them. But uh, from a legal team perspective, do you feel like the president's legal team is going to have to get bigger? Are they set up to address something like this should it actually come to fruition? Well, I think that he needs some hardcore criminal defense lawyers. He doesn't have that yet, but he will. Um, I think especially if the charges are brought in D.C., you're going to see a much stronger team marshaled. Um, that's going to be a very high-profile case. I think, again, I, I'm no expert politically. I'm not an expert on anything, frankly. Um, but uh, I think that if they were to bring the insurrection charge, I think that the political fallout's going to be huge on that. And I don't say that should guide whether they bring it or not, although I think it should be a prudential factor considered in. But uh, I don't think in any way, shape, or form they fairly should be able to prove the Brandenburg factors under uh, the insurrection charge. That's encouraging violence, intending to cause violence, knowing that it likely would produce violence, that sort of thing. I think if you really parse his speech and other surrounding factors, that would not be a fair charge. The wild card, of course, is the jury. And I think that's why, you know, D.C. is particularly attractive to uh, this special prosecutor. Yeah, you need some lawyers who uh, drink constitutional questions for breakfast. David Schoen and Laura Coates, thank you both very much. And our coverage on CNN continues right now. Uh, I didn't know practically what a subpoena was and grand juries and all of this. Now I'm like becoming an expert. I have no choice because we have to. It's a disgrace. Well, good morning, everyone. Two, potentially three indictments will do that to it's you on some level. Huge, 20, huge 24 hours. Indeed, and we've got new details emerging about potential charges that Donald Trump could be facing in the alleged scheme to overturn the 2020 election. According to the Wall Street Journal, they include witness tampering, Trump announcing he expects to be arrested again for a member of his legal team. will join us live to weigh in in a matter of moments. And for the very first time, charges have been brought against fake electors who falsely claimed that Trump won the election. And a federal judge is now indicating she might push back Trump's criminal trial for allegedly mishandling classified documents. It was the Justice Department requested it start in December before the election. This hour of CNN starts right now. Well, as we noted, the legal storm around Donald Trump, it's intensifying. We're learning more about the criminal charges he could be facing in the alleged scheme to overturn the election. Former president says he expects to be arrested and indicted for the third time after receiving a target letter from special counsel Jack Smith notifying him that he was the target in his January 6th probe. And now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the letter cites at least three laws, including deprivation of rights, conspiracy to commit an offense against or defraud the United States, and tampering with a witness. Now, Trump was defiant in a Fox News town hall last night. He accused the Justice Department of being a political weapon. And they're in a rush because they want to interfere. It's interference with the election. It's election interference. Never been done like this in the history of our country, and it's a disgrace. Well, we have full team coverage uh, on all of the big developments. We're going to start, though, with CNN anchor of The Source, Caitlin Collins. We've also got senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance. Uh, Caitlin, I want to start with you first in terms of what we're learning uh, in The Wall Street Journal and others about what this target letter actually entailed related to the specific statutes. 
Yeah, so the target letter, uh, we haven't seen it yet, but we would really love to see it because whenever <laughs> the Justice Department sends this to someone, uh, a target letter does tend to indicate exactly what the person may be charged with, the charges that the Justice Department has been investigating and is considering bringing against that person. And reporting from a number of different news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal this morning, says that there are these three charges that the Justice Department has been looking at related to Donald Trump that he could be charged with, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, that is a charge that basically means that the Justice Department has evidence that two people would have agreed uh, to somehow carry forward something that they believe is illegal. So Trump and a, potentially another person, not necessarily another person, would be charged there. But it does mean two people. And then another piece of it, that witness tampering possible charge, uh, that actually may be obstructing Congress uh, because witness tampering, that charge, it means a couple different things depending on how you put it on the books. Uh, but the Justice Department has already indicated they were looking at obstructing the congressional proceeding on January 6th as one of the things they were investigating in this investigation of top administration officials during the Trump era. Uh, we also know that they have used that charge against many different January 6th rioters. And then the third piece that is out there is this deprivation of rights charge, a civil rights charge uh, that would be fairly interesting to see how the Justice Department uh, structures that and also just to see them try it in court. It's not the sort of thing that you see very often. And as our guests have pointed out, this could not be the full scope of it even. Uh, so there's more to come on that. But Caitlin Collins. Hey, buddy. Well, welcome back. Hey, guys. Um, you know, the Trump team, I wonder how prepared were they? for this target letter for a potential indictment in this particular case. And what are they doing now? I don't think they thought it, was hap it would happen this soon. I think they thought they had more time. But I think it became pretty clear that they were seeking information about Trump's mindset in and around that period, asking people if he had acknowledged that he had lost, bringing in people like Hope Hicks. I, I actually think the signs were there that it was headed in this direction. But Trump himself is quite bothered by this. I mean, he openly admitted that last night when Sean Hannity tried to say, you know, how are you so unbothered by all of these legal troubles that you're facing? And Trump said, no, I am bothered by it. I mean, it's, it's a lot that he's dealing with as he's on the campaign trail and his legal troubles are only mounting. And so I think we'll see what they actually decide to pursue once we see what the charges are. I mean, Trump's team has the best indication of this because it's included on that target letter that they got on Sunday night. And so uh, I think what Trump is trying to do is control the political aspect of this. Of course, that is always what he's been he's tried to do when he's faced legal issues or impeachments on Capitol Hill. He's calling his allies on the Hill, Elise Stefanik, the New York congresswoman, he called her yesterday and basically asked her to go on offense here and to essentially make sure that they are using the right message that he wants them to be saying on Capitol Hill going on offense against this. Can I ask you, the, the, the letter arriving on Sunday, which according to the former president is something that never happens. People don't send mail on Sunday. <laughs> uh, I think he said last night in Iowa. But him waiting until Tuesday to publicly break the own news of his potential indictment. Like, is there, what happened in those two days? So there's some conspiracies over, you know, was he trying to upend the Ron DeSantis interview yesterday? What was he trying to do? There were questions about that. What we were told is actually another outlet was about to report that he had gotten this target letter. And so that is why he went ahead and posted. He does have this art of making people kind of wait, but he's the one often to break the news in these situations. He did it with the indictment, with the documents case. He did it when the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago was executed. Right. He was the first one to actually confirm that after a reporter in Florida uh, suspected that it was happening. And so 
This is kind of his tactic here. They were preparing for it to happen. They were basically ready with that lengthy statement. The other thing that came from that statement, though, not only announcing that he got a target letter, was a preview of his defense, which is saying he had a right to question the results of the election. Of course, we all know he was doing much more than just questioning the results. Yeah, for sure. Um, And the fact that he continues to say that is part of the problem here. Caitlin Polance, the target letter here uh, in the case of Trump is obviously not a guarantee. It's not the full scope of what he could be facing. But I wonder, uh, would it be surprising if other players in this maybe did not receive a target letter as well? Uh, Yeah. I mean, Abby, that is a huge question right now that we all have as reporters. Are there other people that would get target letters, that could get target letters here? Uh, Whenever you look back at the timing of the previous indictment that the special counsel's office brought, they notified Donald Trump a few days before they notified his co-defendant, Walt Nada, uh, that Walt Nada, too, would be facing very likely charges in that case. They obviously were both charged together a couple weeks after that. And so there's a question there. But then there's also a part of this that is hanging out there that we haven't, we don't still don't really understand in that the investigation is clearly continuing. Donald Trump's getting this target letter, but we know of at least uh, one person, a close hate of his, who is going to the grand jury, has an appointment tomorrow to testify with them, a man named Will Russell, who was with Trump both at the White House on his advance team and then worked with him afterwards. After he left the White House, there's others we've heard about who are getting inquiries, rather whether they're grand jury inquiries or inquiries for interviews. And, you know, Caitlin Collins last night just had had um, another lawyer in this circle, Tim Parlatori, on TV, uh, and he was saying that one of his clients, Bernie Carrick, a man really close to Rudy Giuliani, who was working on a lot of the election fraud efforts, had been getting inquiries from the special counsel's office, too, and that's not even scheduled yet. So where this investigation still goes uh, and how an indictment uh, would factor into that now that a target letter has been sent to the former president, there's there's really a lot of different ways this could play out. Mm-hmm. All right, Caitlin Pollant, you said this case? Caitlin Cut, this, this Caitlin Cut, a lot of Caitlin's. This Caitlin Cut is a lot of Caitlin's. Um, Caitlin Polantz, thank you very much. Caitlin Collins, thank you uh, very much. And in terms of how we actually got here, well, CNN's uh, senior legal analyst, sorry, Caitlin, uh, <laughs> and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig, is here. So walk us through it. How do we get here? So, Phil, we're starting to get a sense of what a potential Donald Trump indictment could look like. The new reporting is that the target letter listed three federal statutes. Now, important to note that the crimes that are listed in the target letter could end up in the indictment, but that's not necessarily going to happen. First of all, deprivation of civil rights. Now, whose civil rights? I think the best theory here is the civil rights of all of us to cast our ballots and to have a full and free election. The second listed charge is conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States. Now, conspiracy is an important word because you have to have two or more agreeing to commit a conspiracy. That does not necessarily mean there will be a second person on the indictment with Donald Trump. We could see separate indictments. We could see an unindicted co-conspirator. But that's a very broad stroke here. And it tells me Jack Smith is taking a world view on this. And finally, there is this statute that covers tampering with a witness. Important to note, though, there is a very broad federal statute that covers witness tampering, but also obstruction of justice and obstruction of Congress. So we don't know which prong of that statute DOJ is referring to. But that gives us a sense if there's an indictment, which seems likely now, what could be in it? You know, it, it has felt like every day for the last several months, Caitlin Collins, Caitlin Polance, Paula Reed, Evan Perez have been breaking news about yeah. who they have actually spoken to, who the special counsel's team has spoken to. Who stands out in that list? Look, the number one guy on the list is the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. I don't think there's any question about that. In fact, members of the January 6th committee said 
He was their most important witness, and he only halfway cooperated with them. He started to cooperate, and then he stopped. Well, there's no such thing as halfway cooperation with DOJ. We know that he has spoken to DOJ. We know he was literally by Donald Trump's side throughout the lead up to January 6th. I think his testimony is going to be crucial. Part of the reason we know how important Mark Meadows was was because almost exactly a year ago now, Cassidy Hutchinson, one of Meadows' aides, she testified publicly in the January 6th committee. We know DOJ has spoken to Cassidy Hutchinson. We also know that they've gotten into Donald Trump's inner circle, his family members, his closest White House advisors, Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks, Dan Scavino. And we know that DOJ has also talked to Secret Service agents. I mean, who's going to be closer, physically closer to the president, the former president, than the Secret Service? And DOJ has really not hesitated to go to the top rungs of power. They also have spoken with Mike Pence, of course, a crucial witness here because he was the subject of a pressure campaign from Donald Trump. Finally, we know they've spoken with some, but not all of the lawyers. The lawyers are a really important part of this. We know they've spoken with Rudy Giuliani, who was really a driving force behind this whole effort. As far as we know, they've not spoken with Sidney Powell and John Eastman. That might actually worry me if I represented them because typically you would not speak with somebody who was a target. We do know that they've also spoken with these three lawyers from the White House, Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, and Eric Hirschman, all of whom advised against doing some of the things. That and all of whom testified to the January 6th committee as well. Um, the state-by-state element of this, seven states, the fake electors, yeah. walk us through. This was a coordinated nationwide strategy. They targeted these seven swing states. They all went for Joe Biden, right. but they were all close. And as part of that pressure effort, Donald Trump and others reached out to various state and local officials, most infamously to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State. That's the audio recorded phone call that we've heard, all heard Donald Trump asking him, please find me 11,780 votes. And other state officials in Georgia, in Arizona, we just learned the other day that the governor, former governor Doug Ducey has spoken with DOJ, that the former Speaker of the House, and in fact, they've spoken with officials in all seven states. We also know Remember these fake electors. These were the certificates that were put together in each state. People claimed they were Trump electors when, of course, Trump had not won. We know the DOJ has spoken with some. We don't know who, but some of those electors as well. And we know that now Michigan, at least on a state level, has brought charges against all 16 of these folks right here. That list. All right, Ali Honig, thank you for walking us through it. Back to Abby. All right. I feel like I just got a semester in law school there from Ellie. Uh, back at the table here, we've got CNN political commentators, Van Jones and Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Also, Caitlin Collins is still with us. Van, I want to start with you on this. I mean, the big question about this case, I think, from a political perspective, is how potent is it really? How understandable is what Trump could be facing it? Well, it's pretty understandable since everybody saw January 6th. I mean, we're finally getting to a case that normal people can understand. The porn star stuff is kind of like mm, weird and more about his family than anything else. Uh, stealing documents and kind of showing them to your friends is wrong. And somebody working in the White House, I'd be in jail for doing that. But that, all that stuff is kind of feels not that important to a normal person. But if you are going to disrespect democracy, attack the Capitol, do all kind of horrible stuff that would actually, you know, from most people's point of view, result in maybe a treason charge, if that's what we're talking about here, that's real stuff. We're finally down to business. We're finally down to the stuff that's going to have Donald Trump in the history books as being probably the most dangerous president ever. And so I do think it translates. Now, whether it's going to affect voter behavior, uh, that remains to be seen. But this, this is, I think, of all the stuff we've talked about, this is the indictment that's the most important, mm-hmm. if, if it comes. Uh, Alyssa, the, the Republican response, we've talked about this all morning. It, it's very predictable. Um, it, it tracks the same exact Almost same exact response, especially amongst House Republicans, as we've seen repeatedly over the course of these several amendments, uh, indictments and more. Um, 
Does this, in the January 6th element of it, take us behind the scenes for Republicans right now? Because I've heard from plenty of Republicans who hate the January 6th issue being elevated once again. Does that ever spill out publicly, I guess? It might. So listen, House Republicans, even ones who were there on January 6th, they know what they saw. They may have had statements that condemned it at the time. They're in a position now where so many of them are in deep red districts. They're going to stick with Donald Trump no matter what. You hear a little bit more reality from the Senate. Um, it's just the, the nature of the beast. You know, John Thune came out with a statement. Mitch McConnell has yet to weigh in in a major way, but I would expect that he's certainly not going. He, I suspect that he just <laughs> won't answer a question. We're going to break the news for you on that one. He's but, not going to. But listen, I mean, the, I think what, what ultimately matters is the sentiment of the voters. Um, I think Republican politicians have made it easier for Donald Trump to dismiss the significance of what happened that day. But we saw after the midterms, after the January 6th hearings, people rejected extremism and they rejected election denialism. I think that that could end up being a major factor in the general election, just having January 6th front of mind. It is not popular to have an insurrection on the Capitol. Is that that a shocking thing to say? I mean, it seems part of the problem in our politics right now is that this is viewed so differently on both sides of the aisle. Republicans are in a completely different world on this. And the Trump campaign is notorious for really only seeing the, in those five inches right in front of them. Are they understanding the, the scope of the problem here for the pres- former president? I, mean, I think Alyssa laid it out well last night, saying essentially you cannot win the general election if you're talking about January 6th and talking about claiming the election was stolen. That's something that Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, just said to me the other day. He says, whoever, if you're talking about 2020 and the election, being stolen, those claims, which he himself doesn't believe. He said, you can't win Georgia. And if you can't win Georgia, you can't go to the White House. So what's the plan then? Because like being plus 30 in a primary, fine. But there's another part that comes after that. I mean, Trump, the general has, election. Trump has never seen eye to eye with reality on what January 6th was. Even that day, I mean, he was denying it and ignoring pleas from his top aides, people including his own daughter, to come out and call off the violence. And so he's never seen it the way that other people saw it. And he's tapped into the Republican base in the sense of, I mean, you saw the Republican voter in, in, I believe it was Iowa, confront Mike Pence saying, you're the reason that Joe Biden is in office. And he said, I'm not. But that is the reality of Republican base, the Republican base voters and what they're confronting on the campaign trail. And and just real quick, Ellie, are you surprised that Fonnie Willis got beat to charges by the Michigan Attorney General. I am surprised. I do wonder whether there's been coordination. We've seen no proof of coordination. But look, it makes sense for DOJ to go first. I actually think Fonnie Willis needs to think hard now about whether it makes sense to bring her case. It will be subsumed within whatever Jack Smith is going to do. It will be duplicative of that. And I think there's some serious problems with the way she has injected politics in her case. So she ought to think about it before she brings that charge. All right, Caitlin, Ellie, Van, Alyssa, thank you guys very much. Um, We're going to try and get some of you to stick with us for as long as possible. Caitlin, (laughs) Working too you hard, never get to friend. leave. Um, and we'll be speaking with somebody Caitlin spoke with last night. I'm going to try and follow up on a lot of her questions uh, that, were, that were very good, Tim Parlatori, about all of this coming up next. Plus, we have new details about that U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea. How his mother just responded. CNN is live this morning near the DMZ coming up. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So they can cheat on an election, but if somebody wants to question the cheating, they want to call you a conspiracy theorist and all these other things. These people are sick. 
Well, that was former President Trump last night alluding to potential criminal charges over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The remark came as Trump denounced the target letter he received from special counsel Jack Smith, that letter informing him to target in that investigation. Joining us now is former attorney for Trump, Tim Parlatori. Tim, thanks for your time. I want to start with you kind of alluded to this last night when you were talking to Caitlin. We've gotten a, a better sense of the three statutes cited in this target letter based on what the, what the reporting has been on those. What's your read on the potential charges that may be brought? Well, they're interesting because uh, particularly the, depri the deprivation of civil rights uh, charge, uh, that does seem to be something that they're going to try and apply in a novel fashion, uh, which is not something you would generally want to do in such a politically charged case because it is susceptible to its pellet attack. But that would actually open up a significant uh, amount of discovery, in my opinion, because if they are going to charge that, as, as Ellie mentioned a few minutes ago, with... Uh, the rights of the voters, uh, they potentially open it up to where he can get discovery and look into just about everything. All of the claims of election fraud that they raised back then uh, can all be relitigated here. So I kind of wonder, that was not something I was expecting them to try and get into that uh, much depth on. Uh, so I don't know if that one is something that they will actually include. Um, you know, certainly conspiracy to defraud is something that we had looked at you know, when I was on the team, uh, and then that um, the obstruction or witness tampering or whatever section they are going to use, that, that's also consistent with what I kind of was looking at at the time. So from a planning, and obviously you haven't been on the team for a bit, but the idea of deprivation of civil rights was not something that you guys, when, while you were there, ha had been considering or working through. No, because, you know, we were looking at it from the uh, perspective in an obstruction or a fraud count where they would have to show the corrupt intent that he knew that there was uh, no fraud, that he knew that the election results were uh, were accurate. And what were they going to have to do to prove that? Uh, but going a civil rights route, I think, gets them into a lot more granular detail of kind of reexamining every single little claim of potential fraud and really relitigating, you know, the results of the election, you know, within this trial. So that that's a lot more um, extensive than I would have expected. Yes, you, you mentioned kind of the things that you guys had been preparing for or talking about. You know, when you see people like uh, Jared Kushner or Hope Hicks, close members of the inner circle come in and clearly questions have, having been asked about the former president's mindset, uh, what does that tell you yeah. about the, the targets of these investigations right now? Well, this, this investigation always would hinge on the mental state of the defendants. You know, did they know that he had lost the election? Uh, did they believe that he had lost the election? And so talking to all the people around him to see what he said at the time certainly makes sense to me. Uh, but even there, they're going to have to go with a timeline of did he initially say, as I think he spoke to Alyssa Farah, um, one, at one time and say, I can't believe that I lost. But then after that was briefed by Rudy Giuliani and others, and at that point said, well, wait a minute, there might be fraud here, and changed his mind. Really, it kind of goes down to on January 5th, did he believe at that point that he had lost the election, or did he believe at that point that, that there was fraud? I mean, so they're going to have to really zero in on that point of the timeline. Right. And I understand that. And you, you said something to, to Caitlin last night, Caitlin Collins last night, about how his intentions could be interpreted in multiple different ways at various points. I think this gets yeah. into that as well. I mean, I guess 
My question on that issue specifically is, like, listen to the call with Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. Actually, let's just play it right now. Mm-hmm. Sure. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. And I get that you can try and take that last clause and say that that's proving that he thinks he won the state. Like, but he's saying we need to go find votes and you need to find me one more vote than I'm currently losing by. I feel like that's a pretty clear state of mind. If you cut it down to just that one sentence, I think that you can make that conclusion. If you broaden it out to the entire tape, another possible interpretation of that is he's talking about the scope of work. You know, if he's saying in there, you know, look, we, we won by hundreds of thousands of votes. There are hundreds of thousands of illegal votes. Given the timeline, Brad, you don't have to find them all. You know, just find the 11,000 and then you can decertify. You know, have somebody else go find the other 100,000 afterwards to criminally prosecute them. But it, it certainly, and to some of the witnesses I've spoken to, it certainly struck them as this is more of a scope of work. Right. Uh, within the shortened time period than a directive of, you know, you must find this many votes. Um, can I ask you before I let you go, the, the, the Trump legal operation sure. as it currently stands, uh, they are facing a lot right now and potentially a lot more uh, depending on where this uh, target letter ends up taking things. Are they situated to deal with this based on who's currently there? Do they need to expand significantly? What's your sense of things given the departures that we've seen uh, just since the Mar-a-Lago indictments? I know that the team, when I was there, was prepared to handle it. Uh, As to what the current makeup of the team is, I don't really have any visibility into it. All right. Tim Parlatore, appreciate your time, sir. Thanks. And still with us is Caitlin, Ali, and Van. Uh, Ali, I want your instant replay reaction to what you just heard from Tim Parlatore. I was struck there by what he said at the end, explaining away uh, that audio tape of his call with Brad Raffensperger. I think that's an interesting take. And, and also, I think we need to be careful when we talk about that tape because it's a 62-minute transcript. And of course, we've heard that clip of I need you to find 11,000 votes countless times. But there are Trump is all over the map in that tape. There's actually another point in the tape when he says, all I want you to do is, find, is count the votes as they were cast. So there is going to be some wiggle room there. That tape is not a smoking gun. I don't believe anything's a smoking gun. You're always going to have talented lawyers like Tim and others trying to pick it apart. The other thing I think that he said that is really interesting is, as we've sort of talked about, it looks like Donald Trump is gonna make some version of what we call an advice of counsel defense, meaning my lawyers, my advisors, they told me I had won, some of them at least. They told me there had been massive fraud and I'm entitled to pursue that. Now, you're not entitled to do absolutely anything. You're not entitled to break the law in the course of pursuing that, but count on that being a main defense that we hear. I think that's why one of the key things that the special counsel seems to be getting at when it comes to January 6th is Trump and those around him, were they told what they were doing was illegal, but they said essentially do it anyway. I think that is, intent has been a big part of this. We know know, they talked to Jared Kushner, they've talked to Hope Hicks, they've looked at that. And so I think that is something, we'll see what Jack Smith has. I mean, he had a lot more in the indictment of the documents investigation than we knew previously. We'll see if that's the same if we do get charges in January 6th. Van, I think what's striking in this moment is there were so many complaints over the course of the first couple of years post-Trump 
post-January 6th of where, where, where is the Justice Department? Where are the prosecutions? Where is everything right now? And it just seems like in the last couple of weeks, boom, boom, boom. And then particularly in the last couple of days on this issue. Um, how, do you, how do you think that resonates in terms of people? Well, look, I, I, I think that on our side of the aisle, there is a two-tiered justice system, and Trump is benefiting from it. Can you imagine if Ilhan Omar had given a big speech and rallied 10,000 Muslims to attack a joint session of Congress? She'd have been in jail within three minutes, not three years. Uh, can you imagine if Barack Obama had gotten Black Lives Matter to c- come and attack a joint session of Congress? He would be under Guantanamo by now. So th- th- you talk about these two different realities. I think the Republicans say they're being too hard on our guy. And we're saying, what are you talking about? This was like, you know, one of the most outrageous things that ever happened in the history of the country. And we're just now getting to a target letter. That's where we are. We're at a target letter. We still don't have an indictment on, on, on the insurrection and all the bad stuff that happened before and after. So I think, yes, we're finally, finally getting, I think, as I said before, to stuff that was the most offensive to, the, to most Americans. Um, I also think that uh, Trump, I, when you listen to him, I think he's making a certain bet. We, all, we keep saying, you know, uh, this is not going to play in a general election. It's not going to play, play in a general election. Uh, you know, I don't know because I'm not seeing the numbers change uh, very much uh, with indictment after indictment. We'll see if this one makes a difference. But I think he might be playing a different game here. He might be thinking of himself as an antihero uh, that can ra- in an age of antiheroes. And uh, so I'm not sure. But I think for, from my point of view, we're finally getting down to the real stuff. It may not be even a question of Trump gaining. It might be a question of Biden losing, if, you know, exactly. losing support on the other side of the equation. We'll have to leave it there. Van, Ali, Caitlin, thank you all so much for joining us this morning. And up next for us, a catastrophic flood in southwest Kentucky overnight, prompting several water rescues. An update on that ahead. And CNN's Will Ripley is near the demilitarized zone where a U.S. soldier crossed over to North Korea and is now believed to be in custody there. Will? Phil, this is about as close as we are allowed to get. Still less than five miles from the spot where this Army private just walked over the military demarcation line. See those spikes? See those barricades? All this security? How did he do it? And what other American made that trip before him? As you get your morning started, here are five things you need to know. Former President Trump says that he expects to be indicted and arrested again. Trump announced special counsel Jack Smith notified him that he's a target of a criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And for the very first time, suspects have been charged in the 2020 fake elector scheme. Michigan's attorney general announcing felony charges against 16 alleged fake electors accused of signing certificates that falsely claimed Trump won the 2020 election there. Catastrophic flooding in southwestern Kentucky this morning, resulting in several water rescues. Heavy rain and thunderstorms are expected to continue this morning. Officials in the region warning that residents need to stay off the roads. And over 70 million people are under heat alerts from Florida to California. Miami has seen 38 consecutive days where the heat index has been in the triple digits. In Phoenix, it has set a new record after its 19th straight day of temperatures exceeding 110 degrees. And it has been 27 years since rapper Tupac Shakur was killed. But now police in Las Vegas have executed a search warrant in connection with his murder. That's five things that you need to know this morning. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. Go to CNN.com slash five things. You can also find it anywhere you get your podcasts. I want to do an entire show on Tupac.
I'm I so know fascinated more about by that, that development. I have sure. so many questions. Uh, but this was also fascinating. We covered some of it yesterday. Now we have new details about the U.S. soldier who is believed to be in North Korean custody. The Army says Private Travis King is a cavalry scout who enlisted in January 2021. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says King, quote, willfully and without authorization, crossed the demilitarized zone while on a tour of the Joint Security Area. Two U.S. officials tell CNN that King spent 50 days in a detention facility in South Korea after facing disciplinary action for assault. King was about to be separated from the Army and was even escorted to the airport to fly back to the U.S., but never boarded the plane. CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley joins us now from the Unification Bridge near the DMZ. Uh, Will, what are you seeing right now? What more do we know? Yeah, you know, we actually just made that drive from the airport. It takes about 90 minutes or so to get here. This is as close as we are allowed to get to uh, the joint security area where this incident took place. This is the unification bridge just beyond these barricades here. And you can see spike strips on the ground barricades. Basically, they don't want people coming here unless they have authorization. We're not even allowed to shoot this side. That's where the military vehicles have been passing by. But there are tour groups that are allowed. They get special clearance. And we have video of this place because, well, pretty recently, President Trump, former President Trump was there. This is the spot where President Trump actually walked across the the military demarcation line with Kim Jong-un, officially becoming the first sitting American president on North Korean soil. So even though we haven't seen security video to see what uh, Travis King, the Army private, actually how he crossed, very likely he probably took a very similar path uh, to the former president. And Will, what do we know about Travis King um, and what happens next to him now that he is in North Korea and this is a country that the United States does not have diplomatic relations with? Well, this is the tricky thing. Uh, After 47 days in South Korean custody, knowing that he was going to face disciplinary action in Texas and be separated from the army, uh, Mr. King decided that he would go and and make that crossing into North Korea. But what he might not have realized is, one, there is extreme fear inside North Korea right now about Westerners or foreigners in general because of COVID-19. And the vast majority of that population still is unvaccinated. So there's a very good chance that he might be quarantined right now and could be quarantined for quite some time before official questioning begins. And when he is questioned, likely they'll want to know all about his military background. Now, previously, about a half a dozen uh, U.S. servicemen had defected into North Korea. All but one of them stayed there until they died. Um, but these were different times when the United States uh, had a higher value to the North Koreans in terms of getting somebody from the military living in there. In this case, uh, you know, he, we, Mr. King wasn't in the army for very long. He doesn't have a whole lot of intel that he'd be able to share with them, aside from where he was stationed and what he was doing as a private. So once the North Koreans assessed that they probably couldn't gain a lot of military intelligence from him and perhaps not much propaganda value either because they haven't really used Americans for propaganda in a number of years. The last time they did it was the sons, actually, of a, of a U.S. defector, a military defector that they put in a propaganda video to denounce the United States. But we don't know any of this officially right now. It's all speculative because the North Koreans have not even mentioned uh, the fact that Mr. King uh, is in their custody. And so and there's no official communication happening between the United States and North Korea. And so really, until we hear something officially on the record from either the U.S. or North Korea, we don't know where he is, and we certainly don't know how long he's going to be there. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what exactly the plan would have been going into North Korea, but it sounds like it may not be going according to whatever uh, this army major was trying, uh, this army individual was trying to do. Will, thank you very much. 
And CNN's Jake Tapper sitting down with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for an exclusive interview, what he had to say about the trajectory of his own campaign and the strategy that he has going forward. Jake joins us with that interview next. Now, Donald Trump isn't the only ones making headlines. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is also. He sat down for an exclusive interview with CNN's Jake Tapper, reacting to Donald Trump potentially facing a third indictment and defending his own campaign, which critics have argued is lagging. Take a listen. This issue gets into the, the state of the race because some of your supporters are disappointed that your campaign has yet to catch fire the way they would want in terms of polling. Uh, one Republican pollster, one who is sympathetic to you, I was asking her about your campaign, and she said she thought the issue was you bumped up at the beginning because voters, Republican voters, saw you as a more electable conservative like Trump, like you, Trump without the baggage. But then they say as you go further and further to the right on some of these divisive social issues that could alienate moderates, suburban moms, et cetera, Republican voters see you as less and less electable. Uh, what do you say to that analysis? Well, I don't think it's true. I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I took a state that had been a one-point state, and we won it by 20 percentage points, 1.5 million votes. Uh, our bread and butter were people like suburban moms. Uh, we're leading a big movement for, for parents' rights, to have the parents be involved in education, school choice, get the indoctrination out of schools. Of course, there's bread and butter issues that matter, too. Inflation, uh, more economic opportunity. Florida's economy is ranked number one of all 50 states. We've worked hard. Uh, to make that happen. Crime, you see crime in all these different communities uh, that is now even going into suburbs and some areas. So I think that there's a lot of things. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is, is uh, I was getting a lot of media attention at the time coming off the victory. I had to do my job as governor with my legislative session and we had a great legislative session. We did a lot of great things, actually things that are appeal to huge majorities of the, of the population. So I think that that analysis is wrong. Um, but I had to do that. And so I was basically taking five uh, really nonstop since then because a lot of people view me as a threat. I think the left views me as a threat because they think I'll beat Biden and actually deliver on all this stuff. And then, of course, people that have their allegiances within the allegiances in the Republican side, you know, have gone after me. But the reality is this is a state by state process. I'm not running a campaign to try to juice, you know, whatever we are in the national polls. I mean, I, whatever we did in the CNN compared, whatever, it's fine. I'm definitely doing better than everybody it's else. It's state by state, obviously. It's state by state. Well, joining us now is CNN anchor and chief Washington correspondent Jake Tapper. His new book, of course, All the Demons is here, is available now. You should definitely check that out. Uh, but Jake, when it comes to this interview uh, yesterday, this was a big deal. This was a significant shift, it seemed like, from the, at least the media strategy of the DeSantis campaign, in part because of what you were talking about in your question. That they needed a reset, that there was trouble in the campaign. Did you get the sense that they're in the midst of a reset when you spoke to the governor? I don't know that his stepping outside of the conservative media bubble to sit down and talk to me is a sign that they feel like they need to change strategies and appeal to a broader audience than just um, hardcore Republicans watching you know, Fox or Newsmax. I don't know that, but the timing suggests that that's true. Uh, obviously, we've, we at CNN have been pushing to get an interview with Governor DeSantis, as we've been pushing to get an interview with all the major candidates uh, for months, if not, 
if not years. But on its face, it does seem to suggest he needs to, uh, that his campaign recognizes he needs to at least expand the audience of people he's talking to. There are Iowa caucus uh, voters uh, who watch CNN, who watch the lead, uh, Republicans. And it's not just diehard uh, Trump supporters who watch Fox or Newsmax. So I, I think you have a point there. Uh, beyond that, I mean, he is not where he would like to be in the polls right now, although he's in second place. He's certainly in a better position than anyone else not named Donald Trump. Um, so there constantly has to be, I think, if you're running the campaign, the DeSantis campaign, uh, a reassessing of priorities. We should note in, in, in all of these discussions about the state of his campaign, one of the most important points is his super PAC is sitting on a absolute pile of money. So the, the pro-DeSantis super PAC still has time to blanket the airwaves in Iowa, in North Carolina, I'm sorry, South Carolina, in possibly New Hampshire uh, to get his message out. Uh, and we still have until January 15th before any votes are cast. Yeah. And one of the biggest things standing in his way is going to be Donald Trump. And it just so happened that right before you sat down with him, Trump announced that he was likely to be indicted. Here is what Ron DeSantis had to say about that. Jack Smith has um, prosecuted Democrats, too. I mean, he prosecuted or at least was part of the prosecution of Senator Menendez, uh, Senator John Edwards. Are you saying that if he finds evidence of criminality, he should not charge Donald Trump anyway? What, what I'm saying is when you're going after somebody on the other side of the political spectrum, if you're stretching statutes to try to criminalize maybe political disagreements, that is wrong. Now, look, this is all speculation, but I think we've gone down the road in this country of trying to criminalize uh, differences in politics rather than saying, okay, you don't like somebody, then defeat them in the election rather than trying to use uh, the, the justice system. So we don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you with the Bragg one, that was stretching criminal law. The evidence of criminality was, was very weak. And even if that, that existed, other people would not have been charged under those circumstances. That's the problem. You know, what's striking to me, Jake, about that answer is that he hasn't gotten it down to the 15 or 20 second elevator pitch. He's still working through it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the news about this uh, latest potential indictment came literally minutes before he and I sat down. Uh, so he probably hadn't even had time to read Donald Trump's truth social posting on it. Uh, but that said, I mean, he is attempting a complicated, nuanced argument, which is, you know, he had that little lifeboat of this is all speculative, uh, leaving him an out uh, for whatever evidence comes down. But, you know, the, both Donald Trump and all of his competitors are in many ways fearful of the Republican base, or at least mindful of the Republican base. And where they are might matter to many of them more uh, than the principle of, well, if there's evidence of criminality, people should be charged. Um, and I mean, I asked him twice, if Jack Smith finds evidence of criminality, should Donald Trump be charged? And the impression you get is, no, I don't think so. I mean, he said, I hope Donald Trump is not charged. That would be bad for the country, which is an interesting position to take, uh, given the fact that uh, if you read Donald, um, I'm sorry, if you read Ron DeSantis's memoir, there's a lot in there. Uh, he's a lawyer, a former uh, Navy JAG. Uh, there's a lot in there about rule of law. Yeah, I mean, it was notable to me that he did not want to directly address Trump's conduct as it relates to, to January, uh, January 6th. Uh, and that's not going to be something that he can continue to ignore for much longer. But, Jake, thank you for being here. 
And everyone, just be sure to watch The Lead with Jake Tapper at 4 p.m. Eastern time later today. He's an okay guy. Yeah, Jake right. Tapper. He's still, I think he's still here. But it's okay. Oh, can We're going to talk us? about it. We don't want him to hear us. That'd be bad. <laughs> That'd be bad. It's a great interview. You guys should watch it uh, if you haven't already. Also, Israeli President Isaac Herzog will be addressing Congress in just hours. Why some Democratic lawmakers say they'll boycott his speech. But more on that ahead. And happening today, House Republicans holding a controversial public hearing with two IRS whistleblowers at the center of the Hunter Biden investigation. That's coming up. Just hours from now, the president of Israel, a major U.S. ally, is set to address a joint session of Congress. But some progressive lawmakers say they plan to skip the speech in a controversial boycott against the nation's treatment of Palestinians. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill this morning. Lauren, so how many Democrats now are expected to participate in this boycott of the speech? Yeah, Abby, it's just a handful of progressive Democrats, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as well as Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush. And we also know that Rashida Tlaib will not be attending the speech either. But this comes on the heels of a tough week on Capitol Hill when it comes to the U.S. relationship with Israel. When Herzog addresses Congress later this morning, he'll do so after there was a lot of back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. Ultimately, culminating last night in a vote on the House floor of a resolution showing support for Israel. Ultimately, all but nine Democrats supported that resolution, but it came after the leader of the House Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, said over the weekend that Israel was a racist state. She later walked those comments back, and we should note she voted for the resolution, but Republicans were really trying to show and drive a wedge between the Democratic Party yesterday with that resolution. Ultimately, like I said, it passed overwhelmingly with just a handful of Democrats voting against it, Abby. All right, Lauren Fox for us on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think we should do this again tomorrow. What do you think? I'll be here. Will you? We'll see if there's going to be, what, 900 major news developments in the 24 hours. It's always a busy news day when I'm here with you, Phil. Appreciate you, buddy. All right, CNN News Central starts right after this break. Have a great day. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.